You know, the Manhattan Project is an organized, top-down thing that is run like a startup but is the size of IBM. Okay, number one, that's completely mind-blowing. Number two, it has this amazing, like, pair of, like, technical and organizational co-founders, Oppenheimer and General Gross. You notice that, right? And number three, which is, like, again, just this is such classic, like, Silicon Valley, right? And then the other thing, the thing that's most amazing about the Manhattan Project that really just is like, I can't think of a duplicate of this, was that it took people at the top level of talent, Feynman, you know, um, uh, Niels Bohr, <laughs> and, and, like, assigned them jobs. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. And today, we have a guest who needs no introduction. He's the number one most requested guest for the From the New World podcast. Someone who has dedicated himself to seeing the world clearly. And that is, of course, Curtis Yarvin. For those of you who haven't yet heard of him, he's the founder of the neo-reactionary movement, which he now calls the Deep Right. He wrote in the blog Unqualified Reservations for many years, and now writes Grey Mirror on Substack, graymirror.substack.com. We talk about everything under the sun, from FDR to monarchy to abortion and back. And it really is a treat. We get into a lot of scraps in the middle, but I think Yarvin handles himself excellently. And I really do want you to listen for yourself. Without further ado, here's Curtis Yarvin. Roe v. Wade overturned. W or L? L. Okay. Uh, what do you think of psychoanalysis? What do I think of psychoanalysis? Um, do you mean in the strict Freudian sense? Uh, I mean in general, Freud, Lacan, basically like anything, right? Yeah. How do you think of it as a general tool? I mean, I think that psychoanalysis works if it works because it's essentially what we now call therapy. And as far as I know, the best, the sort of most effective forms of therapy are very sort of humble and much less literary things than Freud and Lacan. You know, there are things like, you know, cognitive uh, behavioral training, you know, really just things to just assume that you're just like, literally training a clump of neurons. And generally, I think that sort of my impression is that kind of the dumber therapy or coaching gets, like, the better it works. And so, yeah, I'm not... Freud was a very imaginative fellow, but, uh, you know, I can't really <laughs> see much else in him. Yeah. Uh, how about for discerning truth in politics, right? You have all these uh, times when people are... Um, when people are proposing one thing and there's a, there's a clue here to what they actually well, mean. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a <coughs> it's a kind of analysis. Um, I guess, uh, you know, my school of politics is really what's sometimes called the Italian elitist school of political science, which is really best, the best introduction in English to the Italian elitists. <laughs> is James Burnham's The Machiavellians. And so yes, excellent I feel book. <laughs> excellent book. <clears throat> and so I feel that when you're looking at any kind of political situation, you should certainly not take it at face value. You should not assume that it is what it's pretending to be. 
you should try and find sort of the objective correlates of reality. Like a good example of this in today's, um, you know, government is, uh, or today's U.S. government is, is an exercise I recommend, you know, anyone try, which is they, they go up to anyone who knows how Washington works and say, we don't have an executive branch. We have a legislative branch. And if they ask you to, and most people will actually get it without, they'll be like, uh, and if they have trouble understanding it, you should point out that the budget policy and personnel of every agency is set in into, you know, what's called law, but are really administrative directives from the Congress. And whereas the way that the president communicates with the agencies is uh, basically press releases. And so you actually have a system where, moreover, what we call the legislative branch, which we call a parliamentary branch, does not actually have any parliamentary procedure or process. It is actually nothing like a parliament except in form. It is not a bunch of guys standing around on the floor convincing each other of shit. And so, you know, these people are not statesmen in any way, shape or form. In fact, I think the future is for them to be basically actors like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is famously, in fact, cast for the role of um, of a congresswoman. And so basically, right away, if you start looking at the most important government in the world, you see that large the the symbolic nature of these things and the real nature of them just starts to become very very divergent and you know so even to say like you don't even want to start from the symbolic meaning and try and sort of correct that you want to start from sort of tangible reality and you notice the tangible reality is that <laughs> agencies testify before congress they don't testify before the president right and and for just for one example right and and so you actually don't have an executive branch you have this sort of ritualistic nominating role and um the idea is that the nominees are in charge of the, you know, the political appointees are in charge of the agencies is just pure bunk. And <laughs> so, so like you're, um, you're looking at systems which are like real systems inhabited by like many, many honest, you know, sensible people. And these systems do not describe themselves as their real forms. And so, to just assume that is actually normal and natural and not even like terribly awful for sort of the political history of the present to be systematically obscured by the very language that we use to describe it is just like you're not even, if you're not acknowledging that that's the first problem that you have to solve, you can't really even like think about these things properly. I, I think why trying to draw some kind of correlation at least seems important though is that i think in broad strokes there is this kind of uh direction uh that's that governments change in right increased centralization uh becoming slightly more or 
dramatically more left wing, depending on what time scale you're looking at. Sure. Um, sure. And- I mean, it, you, you have to analyze like, as long as you sort of translate from the nominal terms into the real terms, you know, you can study them and you should study them sort of in real terms, like, you know, no government. Well, I mean, sort of saying uh, government is getting more centralized over time is not in any way like that's not a government, something that government would say of itself really. So in order to do that, you're, you're already forcing yourself to basically, you know, as we would say, you know, in college in the eighties, deconstruct, you know, <laughs> exactly. You're, you're basically, you can't, I mean, this is, this is just very like, in the sort of, I mean, they of course took it in these ridiculous directions, but, you know, basically saying that you can't sort of, analyze any situation until you've deconstructed the language that you analyze it in is really important. Otherwise you're just analyzing it in terms of these illusions. Actually, let me change the question a little bit. Uh, What do you think of psychoanalysis as a political tool as in a tool for power? What do you, can you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by psychoanalysis? So so we have this, it sounds like you're almost asking me to invent something here. (laughs) Um, so Uh, why don't you invent it yourself? Um, yeah. So right now what we're looking at is we're looking at a, uh, I think a political landscape where certain kind of emotional, um, best hits, emotional kind of like four courts are, are, are very, are doing great. And some of those are like diversity. Some of those are empathy. Uh, right. And and you've kind of given a very good, uh, explanation. And, And actually we can, we can do that a little bit after as well. You give an explanation of the kind of like fake empathy that exists. Sure. But I think, uh, something that that's been kind of rising as a, rising as a counter example to this or as a counter technique to this is uh there's this guy who basically like goes around saying like you know like uh you know like progressivism you know they're kind of like empathy shaming this is just cluster b personality Mm -hmm. disorders (laughs) and uh i mean i think it's a little bit oversimplified uh but but i think that's like actually a very potent political tool it gives a kind of understanding to people of like oh wait the the thing that you thought was good the thing that you thought was unquestionably good here's here's like what it actually means right and that's kind of like a very compelling narrative to people when when yes when when you say psychoanalysis of course it goes straight to freud or whatever Mm. Uh, you know what i would say right <laughs> yeah it's it's just it's it's a it's a code word and you know if you were to just say you know psychological analysis or even like sort of character analysis uh you know i would come closer to agreeing with you i was asking um a close friend with a background in what we call social justice the other day i'm like and i ask her does the attraction of these movements does it feel like an addiction to you? Does what it gives you the kind of energy that, that it gives you feel addictive? And she was like, sort of maybe there's like something right and something wrong about that. And I'm like, well, you know, from one perspective, I could say that this gives you a feeling of power from another perspective. It gives you a feeling of meaning or a feeling of like, impact or doing good granted it may actually be doing good that's that sometimes happens um and and so sort of you know the question of 
the evolutionary landscape of ideas in a system where politics is driven by the marketplace of ideas has to include an analysis of the attractiveness of those ideas, irrespective of how uh, epistemologically compelling they may be. And what we see is we see the rise of these kinds of packages of, you know, sort of ways of thinking ideas and perspectives <coughs> that I think would strike most people from the past as not very epistemically convincing. And, and yet they strike, they seem very successful. And so we have to explain sort of the psychological causes that cause these things to be compelling. We can look around ourselves. We can say, why do people feel good about supporting the war in Ukraine? Like, or why are supporting the Ukrainian side or, you know, uh, whatever it is they think they're doing? Like, what makes people feel like, ah, uh, you know, you'll go around and you'll see often, um, you'll see like Ukrainian flags. I was in like rural Portugal, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there were Ukrainian flags and you go around, of course, the Bay area, you'll see Ukrainian flags here in Texas. There are Ukrainian flags and many of these flags, you'll notice they still have the folds in them. They've sort of recently been unpacked like this tremendous sympathy with the Ukrainian people is, is recently discovered. And so there's something obviously, there's a kind of strong herd emotion here. This is a very packaged sort of thing. It's not too different from kind of the agitprop that that left-wing regimes in the Eastern Bloc used to inflict on the population. Like, you've got to go to the demonstration, official demonstration. You've got to wave the official sign. Uh, you know, that was that was a little tawdry. But... Um, but there's an attraction there. You know, there wouldn't be, this isn't wholly engineered. There's an attraction to this cause. And, you know, it's reminiscent of the attraction to sort of many other causes. There's this sort of generic concept of activism. And we can say, you know, what makes leftism feel good or leftist ideas feel sort of glowing and warm and, you know, that that um makes them so successful when you know for example they may have such a poor track record and uh yeah i like that's a, if you call that psychoanalysis uh sure analyzing you know understanding the psychology of the supporters of any system of power is obviously crucial to like understanding what to do about that system of power I think I mean yeah. something more specific, which is trying to draw the kind of underlying desires, uh, which I guess mm -hmm. is quite similar to what you mean. Um, yeah. But, why don't you say? Why don't you say more? You have you have you have some ideas to present. Yeah, I mean it's quite simple. Just to, I mean, just just like compare to the kind of classical uh, Freud example, right? There's this desire that well, that enlighten that me, enlighten me, because I because I don't know I don't know much about Freud, like Oedipus so. syndrome, right? Oedipus, yeah, yeah, no, 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 like, no. Like, I do mean like the kind of most basic. Yeah, like let's example. let's assume let's assume let's assume um you know speak to me as if at least on the subject of a Freud I was a small child or a golden retriever, and. Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, so so essentially we have the situation where uh, people are uh, expressing these uh, expressing these desires, and then they have actions that they justify with those desires. And you 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 take a look at it, and it's and they don't line up. Um, and now I'm not saying necessarily that uh, one explanation or another of Freud's uh, examples that he gave uh, are particularly mm-hmm. correct or not. But he, one one notable example is, um, well, what drives uh, human sexuality? Well, perhaps, perhaps it is that when you're uh, when you're growing up, you develop this kind of sexual desire for your mother and you want to kill your father and um, have sex with your mother. And that's mm-hmm. the kind of like Freudian um it's still an oversimplification, but sure, I would I would um, definitely advise Freud to um, speak for himself on that one. But um, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But essentially, you have a situation where I think it's true that a lot of these uh, that there is actually quite a lot of correlation between the uh, explicit narratives that people give and the kind of underlying psychological tones, even mm-hmm. if those aren't uh, th- those aren't necessarily obvious at first glance. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. And, 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 and yeah, I mean, the, um, what you notice is you notice that a lot of these tropes have things in common or sort of, yes, you, you know, things in common that do not match sort of common narratives. And so, um, you know, this is basically, uh, you know, kazooistry is another good word for this uh, practice, uh, Carlisle with his sublime indifference to political correctness called the Jesuitism, where <laughs> you're basically like you say you give a reason for, for an action or a reason for a perspective, which does not reflect an accurate analysis of your own motivation or purpose. And because it doesn't reflect this sort of accurate analysis, it's basically causes people to model your mind in a way that is not apparently true. And, you know, the sort of the connection to, I think that most people, when they sort of commit an act of leftism, don't understand that it has the psychological impact on them of making them feel more important. And that's a very basic human desire to feel important. Uh, you know, important chimpanzees have little baby chimpanzees and unimportant ones. I don't know, maybe. And <laughs> uh, it does, doesn't matter. And so you're basically, when your motivation for participating in these things is essentially to make yourself feel important, that would be described by, you know, that is self-importance, that is vanity. And, you know, sort of nobody ever thinks that they're being vain or especially that they're being vain in what often ends up being a very callous way because this is one of the, you know, ways you can sort of distinguish between sort of false and true charity or empathy or altruism or whatever you want to call it is there are always sort of little tells where someone who's concerned, who sort of had a genuine empathic connection would react differently from someone who just wanted to feel important. The example that I give is, um, 
usually is imagine, you know, you're walking on the road and you see a motorcycle accident and the motorcycles fly, falls over. The guy flies, you know, into the curb on his jacket, you know, hits his head and spins out. You go over there. You're the first one over there. You take off his helmet to see if he's okay. Whoops. He just broke his neck. If you hadn't done that, he would have been okay. He would have been banged up. But now, because he broke his neck, uh, he's paralyzed for life. Uh, whoops. And so if that happened to you in real life, you'd be pretty burned up about it. And what we see sort of again and again with kind of various forms of kind of political leftism that happened to backfire you know, from, from the Russian revolution to the Arab spring is that the people who supported them don't appear to get that sort of backlash of, Ooh, I tried to do a good thing, but instead I did a bad thing. The bad thing doesn't actually really register emotionally on them. They're not like really super disturbed about what happened. They're like, Oh yeah, I tried to do something good, but unfortunately it didn't work out. And they're not sort of looking, they're not kind of searching their souls for that, that consequence. And that is, I think, good evidence that what attracted them originally was not a genuine empathic bond, but, you know, simply vanity and ambition. Hmm. Yeah. Have you ever read the book, um, The Elephant in the Brain by Robin Hanson? Um, no. Okay. It kind of describes a similar thing. It describes mm -hmm. basically like the the act of self-deception right all of the ways that people kind of um the stories that people tell themselves and he basically makes the case that it's all like post hoc justification right or that it's mostly post hoc justification that mm -hmm. they're uh, all these kind of experiments a very funny one is like you have uh you have two pictures of women you ask uh you ask a man which woman is more attractive and then you kind of like do like a bait and switch you do like a little parlor trick and you give them the the opposite picture and you say like why did you pick this woman and uh right. people will kind of like people will kind of give very clear like justifiable answers like they'll they'll rationalize their like quote-unquote right. choice um mm -hmm. And of course, they didn't make that choice. Of course, this is like complete bullshit, right? Because they put, right. they actually pick the other person, and most people don't even notice. Um, and basically, that you have the situation where I think that there are many um, quite malicious, quite malicious kind of goals, or at least desires, and that at least, uh, and that what's happening here, especially in politics, is that uh, there is almost like a one to one. There is almost like a bijection to these things, right? You can kind of map. Yeah map the narratives or the appeals to emotion to the actual like to the actual uh, you know yeah yeah i don't know that the cynical think is is malicious would be a strong term i think you know the closest you get is is that it ends up as a kind of fundamentally a moral way of thinking that would be I, I don't think so I, I would contest you there right and i know uh, you and i know you think like that's taking like kind of a yeah, more emotional yeah, yeah, okay. position to okay, these things okay is not contest good, me like, contest me contest me dog okay so the reason why i say malicious is that there's actually i, I think that there is a kind of um there, there's just way too much tolerance towards people who are um who are uh, either self-deceptive or are kind of making these kind of emotional appeals that make them seem like they are uh, well-meaning. And I think that having like a concept of malice that is devoid from 
saying like, okay, what is this person's kind of explicit like self justification? And as as if people don't lie, I think having a definition of malice that doesn't fall for that like the most obvious kind of exploit is, is uh, actually problem, just yeah, I, I get you know, that actually because just better. It's, because it's certainly that form of malice, if you want to call it that, uh, has caused many of the serious political and historical problems of the recent past. On the other hand, I think the problem with that usage is that because you're bending, whenever you bend a word a little bit like that, um, you're not really looking at the same level of malice as like a serial killer. And the thing is, the level you're sort of looking, the truth is that serial killers don't really matter and it's not really usually such a thing at the political level. And most of what we would call evil is due to what you describe as malice. That's true. But the thing is that if you basically, if you bend the word, you give the target a way to escape because the target Mm. can say, this is malice. I'm not this. And they can say that accurately. And so you don't want, you know, you don't want that to be the chess move in response to your rhetorical chess move. And the thing is that also one of the things that you're doing with that word is you're doing something very subtle. You're explaining this really subtle way in which these people, evil results from these people being, if anything, like there's something morally culpable there, but it is sort of more negligence than malice. And, you know, negligence is better than malice. It's obviously like, it's much more common. It's really the thing. And it's also much more curable than madness, than malice. And so when you basically say this is a kind of, the farthest I would go is this kind of ambitious negligence. And really, you know, it's like if I were to describe the sort of, I'm kind of a believer in the theory that World War One was more or less designed in the foreign office in London. And, but of course it had a kind of negligent malice to it because they envisioned a war that would be even quicker and more bloodless than like the Franco-Prussian war. And they were never anticipating this world ending horror. And, so again, but malice, yeah, like it's just too, it's sort of like what you do when you start with like malice and you basically are like trying to prove that, that word from a propaganda standpoint, you're in the sort of standpoint of indictment. And it's true that these people need to be indicted, but those sort of, that's not really sort of the best propaganda approach in some ways you actually want to like set out the story of what happened and then have your listener being like holy god these people should be indicted and sort of terming it in the sort of most accurate and clear but sort of soft and not judgmental terms i think gives you more effective propaganda and effectiveness is the only judge of propaganda that's very interesting because i'm not sure if i don't know actually i don't know how to evaluate i don't know how to evaluate this claim maybe this is this is kind of a difference between 
propaganda in the immediate term and, and in the kind of iterated mm-hmm. term, right? Because in the immediate term, I feel like just connecting it with malice is more effective. But maybe that's not the case in the long term. It's, it's Yeah, I'm not sure what to, to make of this. It's too, like, when you're oppositional, it, it doesn't convey your sense of the right to rule. And if you think about sort of the attitude of the best possible next regime toward the previous regime, it's sort of full of sympathy because it sort of can afford to be historically generous. Like there's sort of as little odium as possible toward anyone in the previous system. It's just like your judge judgment is that a lot of people were very small cogs in a very big wheel and the whole thing is failed and has to be gotten rid of. And the gentler you are about it, the more sort of majestic you seem. And uh, so is definitely a communist, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and so (coughs) the, like, if you sort of have this kind of softer, more gracious, more king-like rhetoric, I think you're just going to do better in the long run because you're basically, it's not about your opponents, it's about you. It's not about sort of shrilly indicting your opponents. You know, the shrillness, any level of shrillness just drives people away. You know, what you want is for them to realize that, you know, even though there are five of you and five million of them, you're actually the adults in the room. And so that's why this sort of, you know, understated and sympathetic judgment, which is sort of, you know, it's like what you want is to give these, your enemies as much sympathy as like historians in the 23rd century will feel the need to give them. They're just like, yeah, there were these guys like, you know, a lot of good guys, you know, but uh, the thing was, you know, and uh, so the, uh, it'll be a very informal history at that time. And uh, yeah, so like, that's why I sort of go for these more gentler, less sort of less shrill terminologies. I mean, both in sort of the negative and the positive directions, you may, may know my objections to terms like, you know, rationalist or modern monetary theory or whatever, which basically presume their own correctness and universality. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, some of the most successful political labels of all time, like Whig and Tory, which are used by the, you know, people that are called these names of many periods, you know, both of these are descended originally for terms for cattle rustlers, uh, um, just thieves, bandits, highwaymen, just the scum of the scum, right? So, uh, you know, there's always this, like, strength that comes out of, like, ironically boasting of one's weakness, and and harmlessness it just it feels better than you know having having aggressive terminology and you know there's always there's you know there's plenty of time to try these bastards after we uh, after we take over there's no need to try them before then um yeah is there a is there a trade off though between that and the ability to take power um no um because i think that it's true that People LARP the things that work in the sort of modern age. And so this is a very, very ironic age 
this is we we live in the most ironic most sophisticated society in terms of just media consumption that has ever existed and so and politics doesn't you know you see some hints of it in trump but <coughs> sort of no one understands like just the power of like aggressive modernism even in in politics like no one understands like how ironic you can be or like all the ways you can break the fourth wall and so when you're basically understated and calm you leave yourself with a lot of room to get wild when what you're do you mean by aggressive modernism uh, I mean, aggressive modernism, I mean, subverting the conventional narrative with any kind of irony, whether it's modernist or postmodernist. I mean, basically saying, I'm going to acknowledge to you that the presidency is a symbolic office I'm running for. I'm going to basically, this is going to be one gag from beginning to end. You almost see that in Zelensky in the Ukraine, right? You know, and... The, the, and, and so, like, when you see, like, that versus, like, you know, this message was paid for by Mike Pence, you know, it's just like we were watching, like, two different levels of technology. And, you know, Trump is an entertainer and did very well off of that. But, like, I mean, we could do far better than that. Right. And, and so, yeah. So, ordinarily, like, in terms of, and just like, shrillness of any kind which might have been like rousing to like scottish cowherds in the 1750s you know is like a turnoff it, it comes it's like whining on some malice you know like no man you're like these guys i mean these guys are just doing their jobs you know but you gotta look at the shit and be like hey man this shit sucks and and like have a little more like I, you need to be <coughs> You need to you sort of own your frame a little more and sort of if I go back to sort of the historical view, like, you know, no one in 2022 is writing a history of the Wars of the Roses that's like a vicious indictment of the, you know, Lancastrian bastards or, you know, like like a, a staunch upholding of the claims of the House of York. Like there's no like one sided history of the Wars of the Roses. Like no one would dream of writing such a thing. And so there's sort of no sense of like this is part of our time and we need to struggle against it and we need to condemn, you know, Richard the Third for his like bad shit. Right. Nobody's sort of writing that way. And so if you have this sort of sense of emotional detachment from the present, if you're to coin a term clear pilled, you basically it's like you have sort of less of this kind of a haze over your thinking. You appear calm when others are not calm. And um you just look better. It's just like better tactics really. And whereas whenever like it used to be that the hard sell worked. In like early advertising, they were like, you know, the new you know, Oldsmobile ball buster, like, you know, this, 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 this car will bust your balls faster than any other car. You know, I mean, but, but now it's like, you'll watch old things from the period of early advertising that are meant with complete dead seriousness and you can only interpret them as camp. And, you know, that's, that's like that 
attitude toward content basically needs to govern the attitude toward political communication. And that hasn't really happened yet, in my opinion, or that revolution has only just kind of started to happen. Um, and, and yeah, that's, uh, that's why. Are we going to see it anytime soon? Yeah. Is, is uh, uh, DeSantis <laughs> up for the job? Oh no. I mean, you know, like it, this is exactly like DeSantis doesn't break the fourth wall, even in the way that Trump would, you know, DeSantis is like, I'm going to issue this very serious executive order, right? You know, and it's just like, dude, what does this even do, right? You know, and like, he doesn't, um, and so in the way that he takes sort of many of these populists will like take the office seriously and I, you know, want to do the Republic, you know, right. And, you know, what will happen is that his, whatever level of energy he puts in, he's putting that level of energy into the normal process of his office. And the normal process of his office is designed to completely immobilize and contain him. The mobile, you know, the normal process of the executive branch in today's Washington is to basically prevent there from being anyone with the powers of FDR and who was, let's face it. He was a King. He was a CEO. He was a Steve jobs of the new deal, you know, and <laughs> um, the, he, um, and, and so like, if you're going to burst the cage of those powers in any way and basically get any serious amount of electricity through from the voters uh, to actual power, you're going to have to sort of break a lot of bars. And the best way to do that is not with sort of sincerity, but with like humor, just to sort of laugh at the idea that these bars are real. And as soon as you sort of laughed at enough of them, they'll all start fading away into like, oh, yeah, we thought there were bars, but we just imagined that there were bars. And so part of like making those radical actions work is a sense that the whole frame, the whole setting of what they used to think of as politics was this like theatrical production. And we are now like, you know, walking the camera is now walking out of the theater and into the real world. Right. You know, and, and the Latin and maybe the theater will even be, you know, deconstructed, you know, and, and actually physically destroyed. And so this, this sense of <clears throat> like the sort of emotional justification for bursting the bars of this ridiculous cartoon presidency is associated by this emotional feeling of like constant ironic transgression. It has to be just like cool and funny and fun. It can't be, Oh my God, we have just realized that we are being oppressed by oppressed by malice. Right. You know, no man, it's just like, we're tired of the old shit. Like it's not working. Yeah, like, what are you going to do? Like, you got to replace <laughs> it. That's what we do in America. You know, we replace things. We're good at it. Uh, you know, what was FDR doing? Like, he created a whole new government to sit on top of the old one. Why do you think he did that? You know, right? And, 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 you know, it's like once you, 
you have to have the sort of confidence to kind of dispel these extremely intricate, bizarre, sovietical, like structural illusions that sort of have been imbued on everyone. And that can't really be done. It's a rational thing, but it can't really be done with rationality. It has to be done, you know, in a sort of artistic and emotional sense. <clears throat> like, you know, when like, you know, Saul is on the road to Damascus, like he didn't meet some like Greek philosopher who like proved to him with syllogisms that like Jesus was the son of God. Right. You know, <clears throat> and no, you know, he had a, he had a flash of, of insight and that flash was, was his. And, you know, that's sort of the way, like the way you need to break people out of Plato's cave is this sort of emotional shock that sort of is not really best delivered through you can use reason. Reason is sort of great, but you know, basically just the feeling of being out of Plato's cave will soon lead you to reason yourself out of it. And if you don't want to get out of Plato's cave, nothing will get you out of Plato's cave. And yeah, that's my, I don't know. That and uh, what's the goal of this kind of emotional signaling, right? Who, who are we signaling to? Is it the bureaucrats? Is it the public? Is it um, like, like, who, who is this convincing? <laughs> Good question. Um, you're convincing perhaps different people in different ways because different people have different kinds of roles in a transition. Um, it's very, very good. I was just thinking about speaking about <coughs> Roe versus Wade, which maybe we'll talk about later. Speaking about Roe versus Wade, um, you know, I was just reminded of basically all the reasons that it is an L. And one of the reasons why it is an L is that part of the most effective strategy for any new way of thinking is to subvert the ruling class. The ruling class still has, is dominated by these memes that feel empowering but they're also typically the like best smartest most selected people in the society and so you know if you basically think of the top two classes in society in a modern western society as elves and hobbits basically politics is the elves and their allies against the hobbits we won't speak of the allies of the elves and the uh and and so when you have cultural policies that either appeal to the hobbits or even worse, <coughs> allow the hobbits to impose their hobbit lifestyles on elves as though the elves were just pretty hobbits or something. Like I don't get it at all. Right. Like this is wrong. And, and like, you know, like it's really bad and like elves do not have to put up with this. Okay. Like, and they shouldn't have to, I'm like, it's wrong. Like, that's very clear. And, and so, you know, what this causes elves to feel is that they're being oppressed by the hobbits, which is frankly all told utterly 
ridiculous because, in fact, they're not oppressed by the hobbits. In fact, they oppress the hobbits. But, you know, when the hobbits sort of manage to strike back, wow, that feeling of oppression, which is sort of always there in, um, you know, it's like you can be imaginative and you can be anxious, but when you're anxious and imaginative, um, well, you get what some people call paranoid ideation. And so as soon as basically, like, you know, you've been afraid that, like, people are stalking your children for weeks, right? And then you see a guy pop up behind the hedge with a black mask on and you're just like, see, right. You know, anything that will sort of give substance and form to your otherwise incubate and rather example-less paranoid ideation is just like this huge gift, right? You know, and, and you're, and you're basically, so you're basically taking these elves and you're basically reminding them, oh yeah, you know, now that Hobbit laws affect your body, uh, elf, right? You remember the most important rule of politics, which is, um, Carl Schmidt's distinction between friend and enemy. And now, you know, you, you were starting to think like thoughts of like allying, uh, like, I don't even know, like working with hobbits in some ways. Like, you know, you go in the hobbit town, you wear your nose, pl- uh, you know, like, okay, okay, but you got to remember who your friends and enemies are. And now I think you remember. Um, and, you know, in closing, let me just say three words, elf together strong. So, you know, basically <laughs> vote elf, no matter who vote elf, no matter who. Right. You know, and so <laughs> the thing is, you basically <coughs> you've done this thing where you go and make your enemies like stronger. And, and you know, we're over like hobbits. Like if there's any hobbits out there, I don't any hobbits listen to your podcast because because what? But, you know, if there's any hobbits out there, I guess I went on Tucker Carlson's, you know, Internet show, which is maybe my address to the hobbits. If there's any hobbits out there. um um, you should know that not all the elves are against you. Okay. So basically they're like dissidents or like, you know, basically dark elves and, you know, intellectual dark elves. Yeah. The intellectual dark elves, you know, and these dark elves, you know, they're on your side. They're actually on your side. They're not, we're not one of you. Okay. I don't look like one of you. I don't smell like one of you. And frankly, I'm not even sure if I like you, but you know, I'm on your side. And, 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 you know, this is how as a doc elf I feel. So, you know, all I'm saying is like, you know, I think considering as like we live in, you know, elf occupied America that maybe we elves could do some good for you. Okay. But basically what happened here is that anything we were trying to do, you just took a giant shit all over. So like, it's fine. Your hobbits, I expect it. I should expect it. It's going to happen. But like, let's, you know, just cause you're hobbits doesn't mean you're stupid. Okay. Like, like let's think about what happened here and like, you know, try to see if we can have a way of doing things that like involve actually winning and not like taking a huge L like this. Um, and yeah, you know, so, I mean, this, this always happens. This is otherwise, you know, if people didn't do dumb shit like this, we went along, we went have won a long time ago, but you know, it's, uh, <laughs> that's, I mean, basically you're the way I would summarize that L since we got over it, uh, since we got into it, is that um, in any long-term conflict, a win is when 
af- a win in a battle is when after the battle, future operations are easier than they were before the battle. If that is true, then the battle has strengthened your interests, regardless of who holds the battlefield. If that is not true, then the battle has damaged your interests. And so, you know, the question in a conflict is, is like when you're basically looking at a policy and you're saying, well, this has this good result. And, you know, I find abortion fairly appalling, although I do take kind of a Roman view of the subject. And when I'm like, okay, the dividends of this policy must be so great that you're willing to damage your cause for it. Is that really? No, like, you know, don't, I mean, that's the thing is that if you don't have, power, unless, until you have absolute power, your political actions should never be directed at direct outcomes. They should always be directed at attaining more power, because that's how you win. And you'll notice the strange correlation between that principle and the way, um, and our discussion of leftist psychology earlier. Strangely, uh, that is not a coincidence at all, uh, in my opinion. And, um, and so, if you want to sort of emulate that thinking with that effect, in a way that doesn't involve a bunch of like self-deception and, you know, malicious negligence, um, then like you have to actually explicitly think in terms of, oh, is this action making me more powerful or less powerful? And we can easily see that the action is making us less powerful, making, you know, the uh, the faction that actually loves and cares for the hobbits less powerful because it makes their enemies more powerful and it makes their allies less powerful. And so, like, done, case closed, they're improved. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'll make a diagonal attack on that. And, and I want to be clear, I mean, I think that the, the decision might actually be a win even strategically because um, um, I really see, I really see kind of social progressivism or wokeness, whatever you want to call it, as kind of a, as a kind of acid towards institutions, right? So if you think about the kind of Democratic Party, there are kind of these institutions that were built up by FDR even before him. And these have kind of continued on forward. Yeah, okay, and, let me... Uh, can I, can in, I, in 2020, right? Can I interrupt you? Right? Can I yeah, you? I, you know, let me yeah. interrupt you because I think, uh, you know, one of the sort of errors that is leads to... I errors like the one that I think I see that I'm going to make in five seconds that you're going to make in five seconds. You know, you're going to say that this is basically an accelerationist position because, you know, making these institutions more incompetent speeds up their collapse. And I don't think there's any correlation between incompetence and collapse. Have you ever been to uh, Latin America? Uh, Yeah, I've been to Brazil like once. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of public incompetence in Brazil and has it collapsed? No, but I I think that like when you have an organization, say like these kind of like democratic packs, which are like trying to trying to win political power. Right. And I actually do think elections matter more. Maybe that's a mistake in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Sure. But uh, when you have these organizations that actually kind of work, right, they actually do help Democrats get more votes. Right. Uh, And that they're kind of uh, they're kind of being made worse at their purpose, which is getting Democrats more votes. Yeah. I think that that's still kind of a win. I think there are, like, 
I think your cue ball is probably hitting a few too many cushions there. Uh, and, and like, so the thing is you can construct all sorts of indirect wins from anything and, um, you know, third order consequences, fourth order consequences, you know, the pool ball goes off the pool table and hits, you know, a spectator in the head and he turns into <laughs> Hitler, right? You know, and, 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 and like, I just like, that's fine. You know, two things. One is as long as you overthink one thing, you should overthink everything. And actually your, your search should always have this bread, bread first quality, right? Yes. And, and so, yeah, tell me about all the third order consequences, positive and negative, and then, then get back to me on that shit. And, um, and, and it's so much, it's so important not to lose track of those, of the f- most basic first order qualities of what you're doing to sort of be distracted by these, um, elaborate pool shots. I mean, I think I'm making a stronger claim than you think, because the the trade-off here, I think, is between kind of emotional salience, which you're losing, and then organizational um, interference. So salience, I mean, salience salience can come from, like, emotional salience is only one kind of salience. Uh, You definitely need salience. You need to jump out. You need to stand out. You need to paint a striking propaganda picture. I find that being a monarchist provides really all the salience that I need because people are just like, whoa, what the fuck? Right. You know, and, and the, um, you know, you're not that far from a world in which you can have a candidate in 2024, even maybe who would just be like, yeah, if I'm elected, I'm going to, assume absolute power in Washington and rebuild the government. And wait, really? Yeah, I think, wait, get, wait. I, yeah, I think you get a, get away with it. Um, it would just be like, it wouldn't be that much more, uh, you know, it's, that's sort of what people already thought was happening with Trump. Right. And, and you're just like, yeah, I mean, I'm going to be a real, I like, shit's going to go crazy, man. You know? <laughs> and, and, like, do you remember, you know, Trump's uh, inauguration speech where he basically quotes Bane from um, the Christopher Nolan Batman film? You know, he's like, I give it to you, the people, uh, you know, and, and people love that. They love that comic book shit, right? You know, like, what do people watch watching movies, you know, today? Do they watch Cary Grant? You know, no, they watch the Marvel fucking cinematic universe. You know, they want to elect a superhero president. And then once they elect a superhero president, once he's like, yeah, I'm a superhero, you know, I have a cape and I'm going to be an actual president and like take command of the government. Like it says in the constitution boys. And like, yeah, I don't think that that would be like, the thing is people have already turned it up to 11 or 12 with like fascist Trump, the, 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 the Caudillo. The thing is, to do it for real does not make them much more hysterical. And it's actually much more effective. And, and yeah, I like it basically. And, and, and when that is presented as like an act of supreme irony, which is exactly what it is, it has a completely different feel from like support the dear leader. Right. You know, it's like, 
Trump's camp, you know, that mood of irony was all over Trump's campaign. It was the best thing about the way he ran is, you know, when you see Trump on camera, he's like always about to break the fourth wall. He's always playing with the fourth wall. Right. And, and, you know, he's always conscious that he's being watched as himself on camera by a camera, you know, and, and yeah, I just like, like people are ready to go to the polls and be like, fuck it. And that's like a, to me, and, and it's just much more, they're less grounded. They're less virtuous. They're less violent. And they're much, much, much less grounded. And when people are sort of ungrounded and frivolous and ironic and humorous, you can just sort of yank them from the earth and plant them down in some other political landscape. And they'll be like, yeah, man, it's cool. I mean, like it's, it's, uh, like, this is a kind of politics that people have only seen hints of. I'll, I'll put it at that. And, um, and, and I think it's, it's power would be, I, I mean, certainly if you were going to, this thing of an, you know, AI taking over the world by posting on the internet is ridiculous, but, um, clearly, um, you know, um, some, I don't know, man. The non-posters, they're already up yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, they're already up there. <laughs> you know, but, but, but is there a ceiling? Is there an S-curve? Yes, they, they've done well. But, uh, anyway, yeah, that's, that's my, like, kind of preferred sort of strategy. You can't, you know, the Dark Elves can't do it alone with sort of Hobbit muscle, but the Dark Elves can basically create the story that then comes true. Hmm. And so I, I think actually we kind of had a roundabout way of answering the earlier question, which is like, who are we, who are we kind of convincing? We're, we're both kind of convincing the general public to kind of have this shift in, shift in regimes or shift in lifestyle. But we're also, yeah, I, I like, mean, how I, effective is this in terms of changing, in, in terms of changing kind well, of the, the question, the question is whether like is not, the question is whether the hobbits are ready to accept leaders infused and informed by these kinds of ideas. And I am yet to say, you know, give me, give me a couple of years, give me at least a year and a half before I'll tell you uh, whether there's any evidence for that proposition. But, you know, it doesn't seem really that tough. And in any case, um, uh, like understanding actually, you know, if there's sort of one thing that um, the American conservative voter needs to understand, it's the sort of power of following rather than leading and um, the ability to simply kind of add weight by following and in exchange is is something is an opportunity that he should see and understand and you know to give an example of that let's say you're a trump voter here's the way to make yourself the most powerful as a trump voter is it to constantly read and be outraged about the latest you know trump news no what you should do is you should download the trump app the Trump app, wherever you are in America, whatever your, your situation is, will basically notify you of any and all elections that you should be voting in. 
when you go, when there's an election, you'll be notified. You'll go to the election station. You'll have um, a ballot to fill in. The app will show you a ballot. You'll simply enter it on paper the way it's shown and then leave. You will have no idea what you're voting on or why or who you're voting for. So basically what you're doing by doing this is delegating all of your power to Trump. That makes you as powerful as possible unless there's some other motherfucker that you want to delegate your power to, which I don't think there is. So you're actually, if you're voting sort of by electrical command there, you're actually making your vote much more powerful individually. Because, of course, then once you have 50, 60 percent of the voters voting like that, what that effectively means is Trump appoints all these public figures because he's like, oh, I'm going to cast someone to win this election. And then, of mm, course, yes. once this person wins this election, who will they owe their election to? Donald Trump. What will happen if they do not follow the instructions of Donald Trump? They will not be in the app next time there's an election. It's very simple. And I, you know, in fact, you could go one step further. And once you have this sort of super powered block voting in, in place, you could say, well, why should I even have to go to the local school and do data entry? Can't my preferences hmm. just be automatically uploaded? Yes, I've delegated all of my political power to Donald Trump. So future exercises of my political power will go directly from his server to the government. It won't even need to touch me. I don't need a, if I want to change, you know, my position, let's say, um, you know, I decided I got, had a spiritual experience and decided, no, actually I want all of my power to go to Marianne Williamson. Okay, then you have to click a couple of buttons and like sign something. Other than that, you're done with politics. It's so great. It takes all, well, you know, not only do you not feel the ob moral obligation to exercise power properly, you're actually, by not exercising power, you're exercising actually much more power. Because in aggregate, one of these block votes is much worth much more than some asshole who's like, Oh yeah, well I see. You know, there's Tom Hutchison is running for the school board. I don't know who he is, but um, he has a kind of nice name, and I saw a sign with his name on the lawn, so I guess I'll vote for him, right? And so you're actually sort of rationalizing and kind of centralizing the system in this way. If you did, for example, um, you know, I have no idea why Trump doesn't do this, but you could basically nationalize the midterm elections by saying I'm going to cast someone for all 425, 435 uh, House of Representative seats, just the way AOC is cast. Then I'm going to get all of my Trumpies to, you know, and and these people are going to win in the primaries because I can get out the vote because I have notification privileges on your phone because that's what it means to be a Trump supporter is that you let Trump send you notifications. And, and these are just notifications to vote. And um, on the day of the vote, Everyone with the Trump app will get a notification. We'll track actually with the location whether they actually do vote. That will enable Trump to actually predict his vote. Of course, this will swamp everyone in every primary. Then when you have this, you know, any proportion of this block vote actually elected to the House, they become enormously valuable in elections because they vote as a block. Not only do they vote as a block, they have a single staff. They don't even pretend to be separate organizations. Uh, the people on the ticket do not even pretend to be politicians. Maybe they do like funny things in public. Um, but, um, you know, all, even all the fundraising would be centralized in this block. So there's just no tension 
between any of these people. And as a result, if you get a majority in the House, congratulations, you've turned the U.S. into a parliamentary dictatorship. And so, like, you know, uh, like, those are my basically dark elf instructions for, like, what the hobbits should follow if they want to win. You'll notice uh, both the similarities between that and uh, you'll notice that that's very different than the way sort of right wing politics is conducted today in the U.S., which is like some guy with like hairspray helmet hair, you know, who's a real estate agent who plays really good golf is like, hey, I know everybody. I should be the representative. And, you know, well, you know the story. So, yeah, I mean, basically, like this is just sort of an aggressive modernization of American politics that could happen that uh, I don't know about the election law, but I think it could be done by uh, anyone with uh, a few billion dollars to spare. Yeah. I think aside from the kind of like the kind of like uploading stuff to the server stuff, if you just get the notification and you go into vote, I think other than that, yeah, it's com- yeah. like just, it's completely you, legal. You just automate um, it. You just automate it. And yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, yeah, it's like, this is what pisses me off that I don't know anyone with like billions of dollars who could do this. Right. And, um, you know, such as life. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that the most similar thing is kind of Jim Clyburn in South Carolina, right? He he gave the endorsement, uh, and uh, and you know Joe Biden won South Carolina. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, Yet another yeah. instance of black people are smarter than white people, right? You know, and, <laughs> and so I mean. It's the, just the much more is, effective. It's just much more effective. Like, do you want to suck or do you not want to suck? A very simple question, you know, and, and like, yeah, anyway, I digress. I digress. I shouldn't insult white people, but, um, sorry, I think it's great sorry, for, sorry, for like sorry, building wait. some form of power. But yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. I, I don't I, think it's like been great for them. Right. That's the problem. You have well, to actually delegate it to someone. Yeah. No, yeah. You have to get more power too. Right. I mean, ultimately Jim Clyburn is still, Basically, you know, serving, you know, whatever, uh, how should I say this? Whatever distant relative of mine, you know, is like chief of staff in the West Wing, ultimately Jim Clyburn is working for him, right? So, you know, you don't really have this, um, this sense of autonomy, you know, ultimately, you know, it all comes, comes up to, you know, some guy who is not a client. Um, but yeah, I mean that, that principle of doing, doing politics that way is basically, I'm just like, like, man, you can't hack democracy if you still believe in democracy, but once you stop believing in democracy, you can hack it. And that actually makes it much more powerful. And, um, so, you know, there's a way in which this sort of is unlikely to occur spontaneously to the very linear minded American hobbit. However, that linear minded American hobbit is like exposed to enough like elf media and has been frankly elfified, you know, to like terrifying proportions and like in a totally unjustified way. And that, that basically leads them to be able to appreciate this kind of like, elf like camp camp and irony and other like you know fundamentally gay forms of humor right you know and and so 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 like you know that you know sort of unintentionally or you know kind of accidentally i would say makes this like alliance between you know the hobbits and the intentional uh intelligent dark elves uh, possible and um and i think it's a very it's like 
it's the only thing that I can see producing a good result. And is this worth trying if the if the general public isn't ready for the kind of irony, the kind of complete like post democratic politics? No, they, that irony needs to be ran up their ass until they're ready. Like they'll like it. Um, um, it's 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 no, no, no. The 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 public has okay. never been. You know, you need to do it when they still have a little bit of energy left, and they're not just like sunk deep in this world of like weed and VR. Um, but um, yeah, no, I I think uh, I think that that. It's certainly not too soon to experiment with, you know, the politics of radical irony in this sense. And, um, yeah, let's do it, man. I don't know. Uh, this just came up to me now. We can strike it if you want. But uh, do you know who Dreg is? Like J-R-E-G? J, no. Okay, so you'll love him. He's this uh, YouTube yeah, uh, I figured he, it was he was from that world. Yeah, he's some YouTube. He's this YouTube comedian satirist. Yeah, uh, his, yeah. his kind of like main, main like series, uh, or his first main series is basically like it's called Centricide, where mm. and, and the plot of it is like all of the all of the extremists team up and, and, and like, I, can I can I not I, to subtly remove the centrists? Can I can I can I? Yeah, that's funny. Can I just uh, you know register since we're speaking of youtubers i am going to register a small complaint for whoever is listening that here i am in austin because i was supposed to date um date a debate uh the the youtuber the youtuber very cringe uh you know i was supposed to debate uh the youtuber known only as a destiny um you know and you know frankly i handle that cringe should have taught me something but you know I mean, I don't know how to say this, but like the guy chickened out, you know, and I'm just like, man, you know, I don't know. I, it just saddens me. It saddens me that like people would have that kind of response. But uh, yeah, so J-Rig, Dreg, Greg, Dreg, it's yeah. Dreg. Okay, got it, got it. That's really <laughs> innovative. Um, all right, more questions, more questions. Yeah. Um Something about the Roman Empire. Yeah, I think Empire. he really has this kind of like hyper ironic, and yeah. he, he talks about this in relation to like Zoomers as well. Yeah, Zoomers uh, I think have Zoomers this, are particularly yeah. Zoomers have this <laughs> they particularly love this stuff. They have this like glorious corrosive nihilism, right? Which is absolutely yes. you know, it's not really a positive perspective. It's just sort of where you have to start, you know, in creating a positive perspective because there's sort of no. There's kind of, you know, I'm just like Zoomers, man. You know, there's so much bullshit out there that sort of like cleaning out the Augean stables is not the correct answer, right? Because there's just more, I mean, there's more shit than state. Like you have to burn down. Explain that metaphor just for the audience. Um, this is, yeah, people are used to learning this shit. I understand. You know, I, it's one of the labors of Hercules. He had to clean out the stables of the great uh, King Augeus, um, who I guess was uh, big into cattle, uh, probably one of these R1B people. Um, and uh, the uh, um, um, and he had these stables, right, that were full of uh, you know a very large, very large amount of horses. And the um, her, and he's like, okay, one of the labors, I guess, the, you know, I forget what he had to, the reason he had to do was 12 labors. You know, one of the labors was to clean out the stables of Augeus, the Augean stables. And what he did was he actually diverted a river 
into the stables and it washed all the shit up. But now I'm just like, no, like there's no river. You just have to like burn down the stables and start somewhere else. Like, uh, and, and until like you have that engagement with sort of what it takes, like there's a term that I use for sort of fixing any like problem in governance defined as broadly as you can today, which is, um, I would say, for example, fixing software patents. I would believe fixing software patents to be what I call a regime complete problem. A regime complete problem means that the easiest path to fixing this problem runs through regime change. So if you're pursuing any other paths to fixing the software problem, you know, patent problem, like putting together another test case so the, the, you know, Supreme Court can rule against software patents before the federal circuit and the USPTO overrule it. You know, um, you're just, you're tilting, you're actively engaged in like supporting the regime. You're supporting. Yeah, you're doing worse than nothing. You're doing worse than nothing, right? And and so, you know, from the perspective of like the glory of like nihilism is that like just do nothing is just like start from nothing, think from nothing, assume it is all like crap, and then figure out a little bit more about what it is. And like, maybe you can sort of start to think of like positive things from there, but these positive things are not going to be anything like the obvious positive things. I mean, basically, you know, sort of the mode that the hobbits are kind of naturally in is the mode of sort of instinctive military action. It's the mode of struggle. And when you're basically struggling, you're like an animal in a trap. You're like, a, you know, a rabbit in the jaws of a wolf struggles, you know, um, you know, what you need to be doing is not struggle, but strategy. And all of your actions, if you actually want to win, all of your actions should be guided by a winning strategy. And when your actions are just guided by like simple, non-strategic, like, you know, what feels good in the moment, you're just like, you're like a little baby. You're like so easy to trap and kill. It's not hardly even worth doing. And, you know, that's sort of like when hobbits make these kinds of mistakes. I'm just like, damn, you know, uh, okay. It's hard out there for a dark elf. I don't know. Right. I, I use the metaphor of like the tennis ball, right? You, you throw the tennis ball, the dog chases after the tennis yeah, ball. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, dog, the dog very happily brings you back the tennis ball. The dog does that. not have a strategy. The dog has an instinct, right? You know, and yes. the dog is actually not trying to accomplish anything, which is... um slightly weird let me take a uh, one second and answer a texture too um yeah sure the um yeah and i'm just going to register kind of like the most the most autistic uh objection possible i think which is uh oh. If it's not actually equivalent and it's just harder, I would suggest going with uh, regime hard instead of regime complete. Why regime hard rather than regime complete? I mean, it's supposed to be like NP, NP complete, right? Right, yeah. NP yeah, complete yeah. stuff is something that's interchangeable. Oh, so yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Even yeah, if you yeah, overthrow yeah, the regime, you don't necessarily get the... That is too autistic. The... That is too autistic. Like the complete is just, it's the brand. It's the brand. You know, it's like people, people will talk 
you know, like, oh, if I have a quantum algorithm, it can factor large primes, right? They're not actually saying they can factor large primes. You know what they mean when they say I can factor large primes. But the reality, of course, like the um, um, <laughs> yeah, you have the you have the search thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, back, um, back, back, maybe online. And yeah, where were you? You had more questions. I had many, uh, uh, many more questions. Oh, so yeah. I, I, yeah. maybe, maybe this is a bad order. Uh, yeah. but now let's go really into what the administrative failure mm-hmm. looks like, because I think having that kind of idea of what the, what the current regime is actually like, uh, mm-hmm. gives us. Actually, this is maybe a good way to lead into it. Uh, have you tried your hand at kind of like prediction markets? No. Um, I like the, um, I guess I was betting on COVID a little bit, but I was using mm. using real markets. Um, but um, the... Um, if you're, if you're um, willing to say, like, what, what do you, uh, would you bet on? Um, I bet on um, um, uh, S&P uh, puts in January 2020. Um, the, um, um, the, the, um, the, the, um, yeah, where was I? Sorry. I'm texting my fiance. Um, run that question by me again. Uh, so have you had any involvement with like basically like prediction markets? Oh yeah. No, 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 no. The only exception was that, um, I use real markets a little bit to predict um, COVID, but normally I'm not even much of a real markets player. Um, yeah, I just like, I think the markets on my just sort of general experience, first of all, like I'm so not interested in like play money. And secondly, the markets like, like I'm not like, I'm just like too old for like woofy or whatever. Right. You know? And secondly, sort of in the real markets, sort of my, I'm just like, I never really see sort of liquidity on the questions that I'm interested in and think I know the answer to. And so, mm. yeah, the answer is no. Maybe I'm yeah, not I've had this problem as well. Maybe I'm a terrible predictor, but yeah, that's, I'm just like, eh, yeah, maybe not. Yeah. I remember just like looking at some of the, some of the bets that I might make and thinking, okay, how much, how much money would I make just by like dumping dumping everything into the S&P 500 and waiting for a year, right? Because these prediction mm. markets, they do not resolve very quickly. Uh, and well, maybe in this, maybe in this uh, economy, yeah, it would have been better knows, to, uh, knows, to put yeah, it in the yeah. prediction market. But yeah. 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 We haven't, um, we haven't, sorry, go on. I mean, so like, what, what do you think um, Biden or what do you think, um, I mean, just, just even just saying that, it's kind of like, I can't even take it seriously anymore, yeah, right? Biden sure. is not actually doing these things. But, like, what do you think, like, what do you think the, the, the kind of regime is going to uh, do about, like, oil and inflation? Let's do oil first. Um, I think the question is how much demand destruction you can get. Uh, you know, first of all, you'll probably see the world rebalance a little bit. And, you know, Russia will serve China and India et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think the question is how much, you know, the question of the oil price is a question of supply and demand. And the question, 
is how much is supply going to be restricted? How much demand can be destroyed by a recession? I do feel like we face a fairly steep recession. And so the ability of that to produce demand destruction that leads to significant price drops is, uh, I think, best left to analysts of the oil markets, uh, which I'm certainly not one of. Um, like, that's my view on oil. I think there's a lot of, um, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of the money created in the boom in the COVID asset price boom has trickled down to consumers and is hitting inflation numbers. And, you know, how much can that be reversed if asset prices get sent downwards again? Again, you know, sort of answer unclear, uh, ask again later. I'm not quite sure that basically, you know, especially with some of these exogenous shocks, that you can produce enough demand destruction for your recession not to be a stagflationary recession. And I don't really know how the Fed handles a stagflationary recession, um, but I'm sure it's not pretty. Um, these are all big unknowns for me, I guess. Obviously, perhaps this is why I'm not really speculating on them. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, I don't know. I've always... This question has been very interesting because energy. I had uh, Doomberg on last season, uh-huh. the, uh, the the chicken analyst. Um, yeah, and what is Doomberg's view on oil and gas? So. Yeah, this is kind of everything that that he talks about, right? That basically there's this um, there's this ideology that is uh that is very much kind of pathologically against fossil fuels this sure. is this is his view and and i agree with some of it not all of it i disagree with him basically on solar panels but that's about it i think solar okay. panels are much better than he thinks okay. but anyways um he basically uh he points out that like basically this kind of ideology ha- has led to a very systematic underinvestment especially in the west but even even in like the rest of the world but like mm-hmm. particularly in the west um, I mean, I'm living in Canada. There's definitely been a complete bungling here. Mm-hmm. Um, oil is at all time highs, and there seems to be like no, no, no kind of reaction. And in fact, our economy is doing worse than ever. Um, but now you have this kind of situation where where the chickens are coming home to roost, and um, basically Biden just kind of continues, or like once again, like I can't take this seriously now. But like the Biden regime kind of continues to bury its uh, its head in its ass and not really. Um, just act or like just just demonstrate pure incompetence. Well, yeah, I mean, and, oil, and pure, like oil exploration is a worldwide thing, and you know, fracking in the U.S. I don't think they frack. Yeah, you, you don't frack in Canada, do you? Um, fracking. No, we have we have the oil sands. Yeah, you have the oil sands, right? You know, um, and yeah, I mean, you know, again, I just don't have enough expertise to think hard about the balance between oil production, oil exploration, you know, exhaustion of oil resources, plus, um, um, you know, uh, demand destruction from this hellish recession that we seem about to endure. And, um, 
I feel like a lot of the, you know, the, the recession is you're, you're in the sort of state of a proto recession where you sort of only seen the first order effects, but like the like follow on effects of like where you're like, okay, the things that are caused by the first order effects tend to be more dire and drastic. Like the stock market goes down, but then because the stock market went down a quarter later, you see that everybody stopped spending money. And, you know, then like this cyclical factor builds up. Um, I think we'll see that. I don't know if we'll see that. We'll see. We'll see. But yeah, I, you know, I don't know that sort of buying an index fund would be my investment recommendation for the moment. Um, yeah, I think, I think the recessions, I definitely think the recession is going to be long and hard. Yeah. I think, um, you know, because, if you're looking, if, but if yeah. you're looking for a good investment to hold right now, I want to recommend, um, you know, one in particular, it's called, um, cash. <laughs> also known as the US dollar. You know, there's a, there's a crypto version of it. It's called <laughs> Not that know, one. USDC. <laughs> yeah. You, I, you know, the Coinbase one is fine. Just, so, yeah. Right. Uh, not like Tether or something. Right. You know, um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. But, but overall as an investment recommendation, you know, I would advise you, whatever your means out there, you know, dear listeners is, is like, have some respect for the almighty dollar and just consider an investment in cash. And, um, you know, uh, it's, uh, I mean, yes, there is inflation, but, um, you know, inflation is even worse if you get negative returns, you know, my friends. So, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the dollar is up like 80% on Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cash, yeah. you know, it never goes down and never gets old. You know, it may not be, it may not be the century for cash, but I think it might well be the year for cash. Or if you're feeling really daring, there's actually, it's, um, I mean, it's not exactly a cryptocurrency. It's a kind of, um, currency um it's called um uh, rubles rubles that's it you know i think it's actually rather difficult and this is why i would advise you to, to stick with cash and i'm certainly not advocating that anyone obviously no one in your audience would violate any kind of sanctions so it may be hard to get the rules so you know the dollar like you know I mean, there are at least three russians in the audience at least three the dollar is very aesthetic you know uh you know and uh, mm. i mean like, like they haven't, it's very they haven't gone for like the multiple colors thing you know and it's like yeah you're like can i hold paper yeah you can hold paper right think about the russians like think about how happy they would have been if they'd held paper you know you can hold paper you can get a safe deposit it works you know, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's a little paranoid in terms of how you hold the cash, but, but like, yeah, just keep it at a bank, just like cash in the bank might earn 0.25% interest these days. Really, really, really good way to save money, kids. So like, just remember you heard that, that, you know, daring investment call, um, and <laughs> for the lawyers, this is not investment advice. Yeah. Damn. No, no, no! It is investment advice. I fuck up. Okay. <laughs> I am not giving investment advice. The from the I'm gonna, gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, they're gonna sue you because they held cash. Fuck the rubles. That's not investment advice. That's a joke. <laughs> the rules. Do not buy rubles. They are the currency of Satan. But you know the the um um um. Even if they, you know, frankly, uh, you know, but uh, but cash. 
100% sound recommendation. And I practice it myself. I have some cash, uh, you know, and, uh, um, wow, shocking. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, n- not all in, not all in, uh, not all in Luna. I, in, I, yeah, I put my money where my mouth is, and uh, yeah, um, uh, no, I didn't. I'm not like Mike Novogratz who got a Luna tattoo. That's, uh, well, I feel for the guy, you know. Um, uh, yeah, Mike, but Mike. What do you think of that kind of? Uh, what I don't know. What, what do you think of actually like the character of people who are in in the kind of crypto bubble? I, you know, people don't have. A character, a person has a character. The character of everyone is different. I guess I would say that, you know, I believe that I have a rational explanation of why crypto has value. And the farther people get from that rational explanation, um, the more I'm like, maybe they, I'm not saying anyone deserves what comes to them, but, uh, you know, some people do. I don't know. You know, and um, definitely, like you know, anyone could have looked at or could have and can look at DeFi and see that the system is not actually lending money to people who participate in productive enterprises, with the slight exception of mining. Maybe some mining mining is financed out of DeFi, but why would it be? You can finance it cheaper from, you know, the paper belt and. So if you're looking at a system that is paying returns and not just returns, but big returns without actually lending money to people that are putting in those returns, then, you know, like it or not, you have some variation on a machine that only works well. It keeps going upward. And as soon as it stops going upward, it starts to break. And so you can definitely... Yeah, I think you're being a lot more subtle than I would be. I, I'm just gonna say, like, Madoff did not did not promise twenty percent returns. <laughs> this is true. Well, I mean, you know, like, like, I mean, it, you know, what you're seeing is sort of more functionally complicated in some ways than a Ponzi, but it is still getting all of its output energy from its inputs, and it's it's a variant, right? And so, you know, to watch these, um, you know things like disintegrate is like this really necessary, you know, it's like when you look at the theory of why and how Bitcoin can monetize, it's a theory of people who have hard hands because their actual savings is flowing into Bitcoin and or other leading currency, which they ex leading candidate money which they expect to win. And if instead the demand for this candidate money is being set not by incoming savings, but by leveraged bets of various kinds, which are effectively extremely, um, you know, weak hands, I guess, paper hands, as they, they say on the chance, um, then you have this, you know, the price becomes this very unstable structure because, this, you know, it's basically a sort of base of rock with a house of cards built on it. And it's in that case, it's very, very good for the house of cards to evaporate because otherwise you're trying to put rock on top of, otherwise you have this like gotcha in your, in, in the cement of your sort of demand base 
for Bitcoin. And so regularly what we see in these waves in the history of Bitcoin's exponential rise, which does not have to continue forever because you like, is that these people who are speculating on Bitcoin, but not actually saving in Bitcoin get shaken out and, um, penetrated. And, um, so, you know, has that process completed? I hope so. I don't really know. Um, you know, is Bitcoin or Ethereum more likely to become, you know, the standard store of value in the future or neither? I, I don't really know. Um, I know that you can't have a stable standard where the answer is both. And I basically think that for anything that isn't on the list of Bitcoin and Ethereum, that value is probably zero, which makes it a good that should be valued, not as a monetary good, but in terms of its intrinsic utility, which obviously, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's like, you know, like, it's never pleasant, you know, um, you know, a lot of people jumping out of the Dubai Tower, you know, but, you know, nature. Yeah, it's it's not a good. We don't want to be like super negative on this either. The, the reason why I actually asked the question in 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 the way that I did is actually well, like we're both software developers, right? Or we sure. were both we 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 have been involved in software development to to some degree or another uh, through in various parts of our lives. But okay. basically, um, but basically, like there there is a lot of energy and a lot of idealism. Uh, in in Bitcoin or in mm. in crypto in general, yeah. and the people who are working on these projects, like they're still there, right? They're they're all alive, hopefully. Um, and that energy is going to go somewhere, whether it's it's back in, whether it's towards other things. And you you have these kind of like real changes in the world of atoms as well, right? Like all the people yeah. moving to Miami, people moving to Austin, right? Where where is this going now? Where's uh, where, you know, where are the people going? Where are the people going? Gosh. Um... Yeah, I don't know. Um, everything still, I'm skeptical about, I, you know, when I was a young person, I used to see things as like happening very quickly and disasters would happen very quickly and futures would be built very quickly. And like, that's not really how I parse things as much these days. And so do I see basically certainly a growth in kinds of various things that in various ways are outside the narrative space of the world I grew up in? Yeah, I do. But like, there's still so little of it. And, you know, it's like, you know, give it 20 years, give it 50 years, you know, like when you're right, you have to be confident that you're right and that things will take a lot of time before you see how right you are. And yeah. Yeah. I think like the last thing I want to, to get you on in, in uh, this half of the recording is uh, maybe a kind of similar question, which is like your, your judgment on the kind of like mo uh, union movements. The like union, the as in like labor unions. Yeah, like the uh, well, the, I mean, uh, Amazon know, stuff, Starbucks stuff. 
Uh, I don't think anyone has asked you about that before yet. Not in public, at least. Yeah, I mean... So, if you look at the history of labor unions in the United States across the last, um, really, 150 years, I think you see decreasing relevance and power. Um, you can look at for example, and, and, and the other thing that you see is sort of decreasing genuine autonomy. I'm not saying that there's anything, the thing about Amazon having a union or whatever is that it's sort of not relevant outside Amazon unless you imagine having that union having some kind of, um, external, um, sort of power that is not coordinated with, you know, in the, in the German, you know, Gleich, Gleich, uh, that is not, you know, aligned with the powers that be. And I don't really know why people hope for this. Because from my perspective, if you look at the autonomy of labor unions over the last 150 years, you go from the Knights of Labor, which are like truly, or even the IWW, which has some intellectual leadership, but has a lot of like grassroots energy. The Knights of Labor, which is a purely grassroots thing, which, you know, does insane shit like massacring like Chinese miners because they're undercutting the wages of the white man. Just like insane shit that uh you know i don't think anyone today would 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 endorse and um but also their sort of autonomy as a kind of genuine american leftist populist movement is enormous and then you know when you get into the 20th century in the era of the afl and the cio and kind of big labor you see them kind of broadly aligned with mainstream leftist or with communist american parties and that alignment only tightens over time you know try to imagine like a republican union in like america it's ridiculous so it's like you know you're just you're just looking at this sort of new agency of the like party so i can't regard it with any significance yeah and do you think the, the kind of like sorob stuff like the outreach to uh to like quote-unquote working class people is that going anywhere is that any kind of... i don't know what the store up is that a fortune thing is oh the... uh sorob amari oh the... sorob 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 i was yeah. i was thinking it was called store op and some kind of fortune thing to like organize the, the 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 cashiers at your local grocery store which, which would, be, would be cool maybe hey fortune if you're listening you know let's consider it <laughs> <store op>. uh <laughs> but you, you don't mean store up you mean sorob i mean the thing is yeah. that that the the problem is that like someone like Sorab's natural natural instincts, and I'm not I'm not, you know, faulting him. He's he's a very he's like is I mean he's one of the most cool where's he like Tuva from Tu he's one of the most cool Tuvans I've ever met. And um the the nonetheless basically like when you interface with people through kind of fundamentally intellectual tools you're limiting the like conversation to like other dark elves like yourself. You need to find a way of sort of addressing hobbits and that needs to involve kind of translating your theories into effective propaganda. 
So it's more like, yeah, okay. And, and one of the sort of characteristics of ineffective propaganda is it's sort of giving people what they want sort of in this abstract economical sense, what they should want rather than, you know, exciting them with what they care about and, or sort of making them feel it's like basically as a wonk, you naturally think of politics as like a collective action problem. It is a collective action problem, but you know, that's also not quite how, and that's the reality that the hobbits have to accept, but sort of packaging it that way may not be the way to package it. And so I'm just like, you know, what do you do to mobilize and motivate people who are like, you know, big 10 football fans and like proceed from kind of that intellectual level. Um, so yeah. And I don't, and, and also there's something about sort of having like the hobbits, you know, I'm perfectly happy with the word hobbit. It's obviously a racial slur. Um, you know, having, having the hobbits, um, the, um, and I guess we can call the third class, um, dwarves, but we only talk about the dwarves. Um, and, um, the, that's much better than an alternative. And the, um, like acknowledging that hobbits are hobbits and do not think like elves and also do not think like abstract proletarians from like Marxist days, which is where a lot of this is coming from where they're, wow, wow, actually we're doing what they did. We're mobilizing the proletariat or something. And I'm like, man. And it's just a different world. It's a different thing. Like your analogies are not going to help you here. Yeah. So this is probably a question you've answered a lot of times before. What is actually wrong with the current regime? Um, what is wrong with the current regime? What is wrong with the current regime is that its processes are extremely inefficient and ineffective. It just sucks. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, what do you think um, if of the, if, sorry, if you're asking, if you're asking what the cause of the suck is, that's a different matter and a more complicated question. But, you know, if you're talking about should we or shouldn't we replace this, like, you know, does it suck or does it not suck? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I think more and more people are kind of coming along to that, right? Even kind of Ezra Klein and those folks are, uh, they talk about it that they have, the word they use for it is like state capacity. Right? Yeah. State uh, capacity. There you go. Do, there you, do you think they're ever gonna? Do you ever th think they're gonna turn over to uh, how you think, or at least get closer um, to it? You know, obviously, um, you know, in a new regime, on my principles, those principles would be their principles because they're supporters of the regime. So, no, I think that uh, I don't think it would be a leading indicator. Um, I think it's worth noting, however, that when you see people who are in some sense, public intellectuals whose position is derivative seems derivative of power. You should assume that in any regime, their positions would be deriv derivative of power and that therefore in the third Reich, they would be uh, Nazis and in Stalin's Russia, they would be communists. And, these same types of people, the same sort of personality type of the sort of servant of the regime is found uh, worldwide and in all regimes. Hmm. And typically when you see regime change, 
people with that mindset will simply come to support the new regime, whatever it is. I think yeah, if basically, never... I think if the next American regime was ISIS, I think Ezra Klein would become a Muslim. In fact, I have no doubt that he would become a Muslim, and I suspect that he would actually be an extremely devout Salafi Muslim. <laughs> That's just my guess. Could go anyway, but <laughs> yeah, something I've definitely rethought a lot in the past few uh, years is just the capacity of people to engage in motivated reasoning. Yeah, like the capacity for non-motivated individual reasoning is very slight <laughs> and almost not not found in enough people to be worth bothering with, really. Yeah, like, so not, not not by the numbers. And in the next regime, do we see a do we see a kind of continuous monarchy, uh, a continuous rule by one? Or is it just more FDR, like there's a monarchy and then it, it builds an oligarchy that kind of persists into a future, but it's a better oligarchy? Which one of those two is closer? Well, oligarchy implies, um, I think you're sort of in between those things. Oligarchy implies that power has actually descended into, that authority has inappropriately descended into the org chart. And so, you know, that's in general in something that is intended to be long-lasting, and we do want our governments to be long-lasting. Uh, that's kind Certainly. of a, that's kind of a failure mode. Um, I think that that was sort of something that FDR did rather intentionally uh, at his passing. He felt that he had created a machine that would be awesome and would maintain its awesomeness forever. Um, I'm afraid this was not the case. Um, <clears throat> that shouldn't sort of gainsay the proposition that we have to consider the possibility that maybe the reason that people thought the New Deal was awesome was that it was awesome. I mean, it was full of awesome people doing huge, awesome things. And fucking a lot. I mean, you know, but like... Any, you know, Silicon Valley is full of, you know, magnificent failures, right? You know, so, you know, the New Deal has something great in it and sort of the mistake of the dying FDR in basically not imbuing his successor with his own very informal powers is that he's basically saying now we're ready to become an oligarchy. And as long as power basically, power sliding down into the organization is sort of always a disease. There's nothing good about it. And it's always basically the result of organizational slackness and a management that has basically checked out and started doing the three martini lunch. Or as in the case of FDR, died. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. so the thing is that you shouldn't really, um, at least in the ideal, and this problem is always real, um, or this tendency is always real, like you shouldn't see the staff pool of a monarchy as an oligarchy. That is a failure mode. Now, sometimes that failure mode can be kind of okay and like things can fail and, um, sort of power can ebb away from the center in practice and be very hard to get back, but that's still a failure mode. You can actually run, I mean, one of the sort of fundamental principles of Washington 
that you'll hear everyone say is personnel is policy. Who you hire is, is what determines the policy. That is the mode of operation of an oligarchy. You know, for Elon Musk, you know, at SpaceX, personnel is not policy. It doesn't matter if like, you know, 90% of his employees want to build a bigger Falcon 9 instead of the Starship or whatever the fuck, right? They are going to basically follow like all important decisions are going to wind up <clears throat> being effectively part of, you know, Elon's vision, right? And so, you know, really this is the, whenever you see a monarchy turn into an oligarchy, it turns into a bureaucracy. And that bureaucracy, you know, gets less and less effective. <clears throat> when Once it degrades past a certain point, it starts to actually get corrupt. And it just sucks. And so there's no reason why the sort of tension and freshness of an organization can't be maintained indefinitely by <coughs> competent CEOs who preserve that tension, even across generations. I think one problem that that runs into, though, is that with every kind of generation, you do run the risk, the kind of very small tail risk of that CEO being grossly incompetent in some way. Well, and right. that's why that's why ideally it's a small tail risk, which is handled by the existence of a board of trustees, which almost never does anything. And because the board of mm. trustees almost never does anything, it is not constantly executing power, and therefore its ethos can remain virginal. It, it does not have to be corrupted by power because it almost never has to use power. But when it does have to use power, it really has to use it. And so, you know, there are plenty of companies that effectively operate without a board because, for example, Mark Zuckerberg equipped himself with magic galactic death shares. And it doesn't matter how much of the company he owns, he controls it. This is legal. Uh, I actually did it myself. Um, and the, um, so like the, the necessity for having this backup accountability you know, structure is not absolute. Obviously, hereditary monarchies kind of got by without it, but hereditary monarchies also produced a lot of duds. Now, you could say that in the age of artificial reproduction, if you really are doing the hereditary thing, you can do a pretty good job of producing non-duds because you've basically got a whole school full of, you know, potential next sultans or whatever, and, you know, you can test them to within your heart's delight. Still, still, you know, maybe that's a thing and maybe the, you know, the backup selection committee is also a thing, but you really do want that extra. I mean, history is done without it, but history has had problems. Uh, and you really do want that, that extra accountability layer on your monarchy. But as you say, it's a relative rare condition and, you know, life, life is full of, of risk and danger. I don't know. Uh, Right. I think the succession problem is actually one of the most understudied ideas in Right. Or not necessarily the succession problem just for a kind of a kind of uh monarch, but actually the succession problem for the entire regime, right? For the entire ruling class. Yeah. That well there's this kind of drift that's happening. The thing is that the drift happens when two things. One is again, if you solve the succession problem for 
the monarch. You shouldn't have to solve it for the nobility or the and or the administrative class, which is ideally the same thing. Um, you shouldn't have to, to to swap it out because sort of keeping that class, keeping a healthy nobility is at least as important to the monarch as keeping a he- healthy peasantry or keeping a healthy merchant class or, you know, keeping a, a healthy church. Like, you know, and so when you have a healthy nobility, it keeps reproducing itself. It doesn't go stale and decadent. Uh, you know, your nobles are just like all around superior dudes uh, and superior ladies who are just like obviously better than everyone else. And, and, and like, and are capable of, you know, serving important positions on merit within the state. And as long as sort of this kind of the nobility of excellence and the, you know, the nobility of state service and the nobility of wealth are kind of all the same thing, you've got a very, very healthy monarchy. And so actually, the care and feeding of the noble class is like, I mean, all classes need to be cared for and fed. It's just like, if you screw up this problem, you have really serious problems. And so, you know, not screwing up those problems basically consists in running a government that no matter how old and successful it is, still feels like a startup, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a hard problem. You see CEOs talk about that like all the time. How do we, you know, we're IBM. How do we keep feeling like a startup? Well, Kind of you don't, but you also, next to the Department of Energy, you definitely feel like a startup at IBM. And so, you know, the, um, next to Lockheed Martin, you know, you feel like a, a startup at IBM, right? You know, and, and so, like, maintaining that sort of energy and that sort of quality is definitely part of sort of the kind of continuing process of monarchy. One thing you can do in a monarchy that was sort of adopted in this weird way in the later Roman Empire is a sort of junior and senior monarch structure where you have kind of a co-founder structure, but they're like Eric Schmidt and Larry Page who really of like different generations. That way you can mm. have this sort of smooth... You have this co-founder structure, which is well-known to work. There's a senior partner and a junior partner. And then the senior partner sort of um, becomes a partner emeritus, you know, the junior partner becomes a senior partner and selects a new, you know, apprentice and he can go through apprentices the way Coco the gorilla went through kittens, you know, and, and, uh, you know, this gives you a basically a monarchical structure with a certain amount of continuity in it. And then if you combine this sort of the continuity and stability of just like a little tiny bit of redundancy like that with, you know, the power of the mysterious anonymous board, um, I think you get um, something pretty cool. Yeah. So one of our great questions that we're trying to answer on the show is essentially this kind of is this kind of selection mechanism, right? This kind of path towards a better or towards a kind of permanent sort of culture. And one of the major problems we get in this is that this is actually like deeply against human nature, right? There is this, um, actually, there is this, I think, quite informative New York Times podcast about basically um, the history of uh, of labor unions 
and about how much people really hated this idea of like the uh, I think it was called like the the quickening or like the speed up or something like that of like basically like not necessarily just wanting to be compensated more for like working better but like an opposition to basically like working better itself and and I think mm-hmm. that's actually just like a very deep part of human nature and uh, and it needs to be like constantly filtered out of whatever like whatever elite or whatever ruling class you have. Um, That's an, okay. Let me let me there's let me answer that question in a number of parts. So, first of all, there's an important difference between a ruling class and a, a governing cast or a governing set. Um, let's reduce this to the question of people who work in the government. And, um, and, and then, you know, we assume naturally that unless something has gone really wrong with the way society is regulated, the governing class as, as, as it can, I mean, you know, Russia in the 19th century, late 19th century would be an example of this kind of failure. The governing class should be the center of the ruling class. And so, when you look at, for example, the distinction between people who listen to NPR and people who are have GS ranks in the civil service in DC, I would suspect that among, you know, people with GS positions, uh, the ratio of NPR listeners to Fox listeners is, um, two orders of magnitude, right? And so, you know, the, the ruling class, the elite class, the governing class, and, you know, the governing set are all the same set of people. This is, uh, this is the way it works in an oligarchy and should not be confused for a universal principle of government. So I think the, the best way to think about future A future governing staff, uh, that is probably the best term. A future yes, governing like staff, a future governing staff, we have many examples of civil services. Um, you know, most people don't know this, but both in, in actually many, many historical civil services, um, there was buying and selling of offices. In the, in the church, this is known as, uh, simony. Um, Simony, simony, don't know how you say that. Um, and so, for example, in the British Army until the mid to late 19th century, even military commands were bought and sold. Did you know this? No, I did not. Um, and similarly, before civil service reform in the UK, same thing. And it was basically assumed in a, you know, in an environment where offices are bought and sold, it is assumed that the office is going to yield some kind of a profit. Uh, so this was combined with a world in which, you know, if you were the captain of a ship and you took a Spanish galleon, you got to keep at least part of the shit you took. And yeah, this just reminds well, me a lot of China now. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, right? You know, and yeah. so, and so this is a very medieval system of government. Same thing in the Roman Republic. You know, you have like tax farming. Um, 
it is very medieval, like, you know, but it also like it's under its effectiveness and power should not be understated. The point is that we have plenty of examples of sort of transferring from a system like this to a merit-based system. And what you're really looking for is the transition of a sort of patronage structure to a merit-based system under the leadership of an effective CEO. So, for example, you know, the construction of the Napoleonic civil service is a good example here. Napoleon is really a startup guy. And one of the things that Napoleon does that's so amazing is when he's hiring basically people to staff his like super startup administration, he doesn't care what your politics is. He doesn't care whether you're a Jacobin or a royalist or whatever, a Democrat, you know, because politics is no longer relevant in the new France. It doesn't matter. It's like, oh, you know, it's like asking what bands you were into in the eighties, you know, and, and it's like just as it would be in China. It's like, you know, there's plenty of people in China living today that now fought in like competing bands of like red guards in the cultural revolution. Right. You know, and, and I mean, that shit is just over, you know, and, um, and that feeling of combined feeling of number one, personnel is not policy. Personnel is just personnel. And basically, you know, there's two options for you as a personnel, you know, as, as a staff officer of a corporation or a regime or whatever. Either you do your job and do it well or you don't. And if you're trying to exert power upward at, say, like fucking Apple or something, like you're going to get like stomped like a bug. And either after two or, two or three times being stomped like a bug and reminded that you should keep your mind on the work in front of you and not be like you know, designing the Apple Watch when you work on macOS, then, um, um, you know, you're going to keep your nose pointed down or you just start a shitty employee and get dismissed. And so, you know, this idea of personnel as policy really needs to be discarded in the context of an effective and functional monarchy. Uh, I and, think that's true in terms of like their politics themselves, right? Their kind of moral decision making. But I don't think that's true in terms of competence, right? Like one of the no, big questions was like, no, 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 yeah. no. So, 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 you know, the recognized ways of filtering for competence are, you know, one of the unnoticed sort of important events of the late 20th century was that in the twilight years of the Carter administration, they had, they, um, they, they canceled the uh, PACE examination, which was the standard examination for the civil service. The claim was that it was racist and they would design a new exam that wasn't racist. Mm. Maybe it was racist. <laughs> we have failed to find a new exam that isn't racist. Um, and yeah, it's like the, desperate impact, right? It's just so, yeah, 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 so yeah right. So, 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 I mean, when you look at the history of civil service reform from, I believe in the U.S., this is enacted by the Pendleton Act in the U.K. Oh, my God, there's a report. Helen Andrews loves to cite this. Um, you know, in the U.K., the, the um, meritocratic civil service comes in in the middle of the 19th century. And always when you bring in, when you have one of these basically like, you know, placement based patronage oriented civil services and you replace it 
with something modern and efficient, always what you institute is civil service examinations, because otherwise it's basically just a question of who can pull more strings. And so the, um, civil, the civil service sort of by examination, sort of an elite created by, let's face it, acing tests. Uh, I'm sure you've never aced any tests, Brian, but you know, the, 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 um, you know, this, this society, you know, of those who ace tests seem to be like basically like, yeah, you're going to get people that are just a lot smarter and more driven than the guy who got the job being a tax farmer because his, you know, cousin was the prime minister. Right. And, you know, so when you're establishing, I mean, you basically have the very concrete problem of scaling up this organization. Let's say, let's put this, can I put this in a much more concrete framework? Yeah, of course. Let's say you're a billionaire. On November, whatever, 2024. Hypothetical billionaire who uh, definitely does not make uh, rockets and uh, electric cars. Yeah, well, he's not eligible. <laughs> he's not eligible. Although that would be an awesome flex. But uh, you know, to be <laughs> to be elected when you're not eligible, what are they going to do? Lock the doors? You know, uh, um, um, and the in any case, you have a lot of resources. You were just elected president. It is November. It is the beginning of November. You will be inaugurated in the middle of January. Your job is to basically hit the ground running. So therefore you have between November and January, you have basically two, a little more than two months counting the Christmas break to basically staff up a cadre that is going to assert absolute power into investigating and replacing the existing government. You have no obligation whatsoever to use any existing org chart or funding. Once you gain power, after you're inaugurated, before you're inaugurated, you're going to be paid out of the resources of the billionaire. After you're inaugurated, you'll be paid straight from the Fed, which, by the way, is part of the executive branch. So you're basically, in a way, doing something not too dissimilar to what FDR did in creating a new government that was sort of on top of the old government, except this government actually is going one step farther. It's going to decommission the old administrative state, which was either legislative or executive or something else, but is clearly unconstitutional. And so your job is to basically take effective oh and by the way you'll be consolidating local government where appropriate which is almost always and so there will be one u.s police department and the um and so you're like basically just rationalizing everything with tremendous force and the kind of people you would do basically two things number one is like very fast screening for IQ combined with demonstrated competence. The other one is to basically take pools of pre-selected people. You know, call up Sam Altman. He has the addresses of like 6,000 YC founders. Not all of these people are awesome, but like the awesome hit rate in that is pretty damn high. Call up Google. 
you got to pass a pretty gnarly computer science test to go work at Google, right? You know, the set of people who pass that test, again, it doesn't matter what their personal beliefs are. You know, if they're like total assholes about it, they want to take the job anyway. You know, um, but you're basically, yeah. you need a raw, you need a raw labor pool. Then you need to like rapidly bring that labor pool into a sense of esprit de corps. Uh, your labor pool, by the way, you know, between November and mid January, these people are going to a compound. Okay. There is no electronic communication out of this compound into the real world. You can only oh make H- you can only make HTTP GET requests, right? I mean, uh, 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 I mean that's enough for the AI. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's enough for these guys, right? And, and 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 you can only make HTTP GET requests. Like you're basically like, uh, no, you can't have this like connected to the fucking press. You're basically saying, okay, we are going to go and get this incredible pool of incredibly smart fucking people who are going to spend two months both studying the existing government, what the fuck it is, what the fuck it does in necessarily broad strokes, and then what the fuck do we replace it with? And if two months isn't enough to plan that, you should be in a different business, right? Because (laughs) basically, like, yeah, you know, you have to hit the ground running and the only thing that makes any fucking sense is that you're taking over the government and not just the like government by law, actual you're, you're asserting the level of sovereignty that the occupying forces in Germany in 1945 had. They didn't care about public opinion, public opinion cared about their opinion. And, and like the, the, um, I mean, you know, they actually, starved the German population to make that point, but like never mind that. Um like that we, we don't do that, right? <laughs> we, don't, we don't have any need to do that. Besides, the Whole Foods will stay open, you know, but um um the um yeah that's basically the um like level of like a regime change project that you have to announce. So basically, you know, of course it will be obvious that all these people went into seclusion in this way. And, um, you know, like you can't conceal that this thing is happening, but you're still going to basically end up on inauguration day with this thing that is basically ready to take emergency powers and immediately execute on them. Hmm. Yeah. You see? Like, you know, like, like imagine you could be like, you know, thinking about like, uh, the ethics of abortion or something, or you could be coming up with practical real world plans like this one. Yeah, I, I think, I don't know. There are kind of two groups of people in the, well, this is a small enough camp as it is the kind of tech people who also care about politics. Right. Um, and, and like care seriously about politics, but there, there's actually, I think around a 50, 50 divide on whether kind of software engineers would actually be like good people to hire. Because I think yeah. like the, the problem is with a lot of software engineers or like, let, let's take a very near and dear example to my heart, right? I know the person who runs the USA, like IMO team, right? Mm-hmm. I can t- and I know like a lot of people uh, who are on the USA IMO team, right. they, they just do not care. Yeah. They don't no. care about power. 
No, 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 no. Yeah. So, so the thing is, when you're taking elites like that, of course, it's a very crude pre-filter. And, you know, HN, you know, like, like YC founders are a better tier because these are people that have sort of interacted with reality in a way. You're not just choosing them for their IQ. Um, mm. you know, I, you know, my experience is, you know, I don't want to be too blunt here, but, you know, my experience is that, um, it's very, very, difficult. it's very, very difficult for people with an IQ of 170 to be seen, uh, you know, and, 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 and it's just very, it's like, you're like the, the vehicle is just too powerful for its steering. Right. You know, and like the set of rabbit holes that you can go down to go down at that level is effectively like, you know, um, infinite, um, like the, um, uh, what's the guys that the algebraic, uh, geometry, uh, Tyke, Tyke Mueller. Do you know the story of Tyke Mueller? Uh, Tyke Mueller no. geometry. Have you heard of Tyke Mueller geometry? Like it's a math algebraic geometry thing. Uh, uh you know, this, vaguely, but not really. You know, that Mochizuki guy. He vaguely? has his theory, you know, his theory is based on anyway. Um, Tyke Mueller basically invented this whole branch of algebraic geometry. Um, and like, that is still like yielding, like he was an immensely talented mathematician, um, very young guy when he did all of his work, like very like Galois type thing. Right. And Tyke Mueller was also, however, um, a fanatical Nazi. Uh, he was a national socialist <laughs> and he was dedicated absolutely to the new Germany. And he regarded mathematics as secondary to the new Germany. And even though his uh, academic structure was perfectly able to get him out of doing this, he insisted on being drafted and um, sent to the Eastern front where some Russian tank crushed him like a bug. Um, and then, you know, of course we have the large number of communist mathematicians you know, fucking growth and deke or whatever, right? You know, who's just like, I, and, and, you know, they can't both be right. And so, I mean, they just can't, right? And so, you know, the sort of intelligence is useful. What you're really looking for, which is more difficult, is a combination of intelligence and wisdom. I am biased. I certainly think that like startup world and VC world to some extent selects for these kinds of people. This is why I would prefer to basically call the, um, you know, YC, uh, you know, alumni before the Google software engineers, maybe before the IMO winners, right? But I mean, you know, there's a place for the IMO winners too, right? You know, and, and the thing is that even the people who like, using that level of talent takes an enormous amount of skill. One of the things that I always admired, like the best engineering project of all time, what would you say the greatest engineering project of all time is? Of all time. All time. All time. All time. I feel like the cliche answer is the Manhattan Project. That's that also, yes. Right. That also, I believe, is the correct answer. And when you look at the Manhattan Project, Apollo was close. Apollo, by which I mean basically, mm -hmm. you know, the, um, 
you know, Nazi space program. Um, you know, the, um, the other one I was thinking of was Shenzhen. That's actually just very impressive. But it's Shenzhen not just is, like an, yeah, but yeah, that's not, not, not a project right? so far. Yeah. I mean, Shenzhen is very impressive, but it's like, it's a, it's a garden. You know, these are, you know, the Manhattan project is an organized top down thing that is run like a startup, but it's the size of IBM. Okay. Number one, that's completely mind blowing. Number two, it has this amazing like pair of like technical and organizational co-founders. Oppenheimer and General Gross. You notice that, right? And number three, which is like, again, just this is such classic like Silicon Valley, right? And then the other thing, the thing that's most amazing about the Manhattan Project that really just is like, I can't think of a, a duplicate of this, was that it took people at the top level of talent, Feynman, you know, um, um, Niels Bohr, uh, you know, um, um, and, and like assigned them jobs. You know, normally people at this level of talent are like the thing that you do with this level of talent is you use it to write your own ticket. And like even in grad school, when you have the top level of talent, your association with your advisor is almost only nominal. You're not like doing some little thing your advisor set for you. Your advisor is like, I just set the sky free and, and look at him go. And that's where you are if you really are at the level or where you should be at least. God, I mean, it's, you know, more <laughs> how fucked academia is probably better than me. But like, this is the way that it's supposed to be normally in the normal world at this top level. And, and so to get to the point where Johnny von Neumann can have a boss and the boss can be like, Hey, you know, uh, your job this week is to work out some shit about like, you know, shockwaves in plutonium. How do we model shockwaves in plutonium? And, Johnny von Neumann, who is the smartest man in history, basically, as far as I can tell, is like, okay, boss, I will see if I can get it done this week. Right. You know, and, and so you're actually taking, when you're taking talent at the absolute top of, you know, the human, the absolute right tail of the bell curve, and you're actually organizing it into a structure that actually achieves one fucking end which is to produce this incredible bomb i mean it's just like it's like a romance it's like a love story it's unbelievable it's like you know nothing ever like this could ever happen again and you see some of the same i don't think you see exactly that phenomenon in apollo and maybe you saw it in the nazi days of the nazi space program um and, you know, now, I mean, I don't know if there's big companies, uh, but, you, you know, you see what I mean about the Manhattan Project, right? Yeah, and absolutely. So, and so it wasn't like the Manhattan Project, you know, it's like, I, I like to think of, you know, if you look at what, like, post-war Vannevar Bush science would do and how it would do the Manhattan Project, it would be very simple. It would be like, look. You know, a committee has predicted that it is possible to build nuclear weapons. True enough. In order to build nuclear weapons, we need to make fundamental advances in computing and metallurgy and particle physics and chemistry and six other things. Therefore, 
We will create a large pool of grant money. We will put a large number of RFPs to the departments of chemistry and physics and computer science and anything else that might even tangentially be related to a nuclear bomb. And we will evaluate the grants that come in. And the grants that come in and the grants that will come in will basically be like, here is my research that I've been working on for 15 years, but here is how it is actually about nuclear bombs. And, uh, <laughs> Am I, am I just like, is this a fantasy? Am I making this up? I, am I, is what I'm saying, like, not have the ring of truth? And the thing is, you might, you might, (laughs) it's so realistic that it causes you almost physical pain, right? And, and, and there is a possibility that this project might produce a nuclear bomb by like 1979 or something. You know, in the meantime, you'll all be speaking German, you know, and <laughs> the, um, like, and, and, you know, the principle, I mean, yeah, like the idea of doing it this way was just really great. You know, I was doing another podcast the other day where I was like, you know, cryptocurrency should fund this, fund themselves this way because they exactly have exactly the same problem. If you're like the Infer- Ethereum Foundation with this like pile of Ethereum that you got from building the thing, you have to fund like random like grant proposals that are sent to the Ethereum Foundation. You can't hire like General Groves and put him in charge of like, I don't know what, $800 million of Ethereum and be like, take Is that this actually how it works. No, yeah, well, no, oh, it's it's grants. So it's, it's, it's grants. It's grants. It's all basically aping, you know, the most legitimate oh, mechanism in society. So the idea of just basically putting a CEO in charge and saying, hey, here's $800 million, make Ethereum awesome or whatever, is just completely unheard of and unimaginable. And like, you know, that's just one way in which the world. But, you know, we still have corporations. We still have great CEO kings. Uh, you know, didn't Elon Musk change his like Twitter profile to say techno king? I don't know. It's just his job description is techno king. So, you know, there could be some hope in the world. I don't know. Um, yeah. Uh, not that I know Elon Musk or anything, but, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine, s- I imagine him fondly. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I really want to send, send this like entire, entire clip to all of my kind of like very, very high IQ friends, basically. Well, because, uh, like this, this is really like a tragedy, I think. Yeah. In the world. It is. It is. It is. It is. And, and, and the thing is that, you know, Napoleon, you know, the like basically startup gifted kid who became a national CEO and called himself an emperor. Um, he had this great line where he's like, every regime is safe so long as the most talented people are in the government. And the thing is, when you look at sort of New Deal America, like that's like clearly true. Like the center of like all the amazing stuff that happens really is at that time, Washington, D.C. And... So, like, that's the Silicon Valley of its day, even. Like, I wouldn't, you know, I really would go that far. And, um. Yeah, I mean, so, just look at where, where the money is moving, right? Like, yeah, and where the, and, and, it is impressive and where the, and where like. the talent is going and where, like, there's just, like, the energy there, like, things are getting done, right? And they're getting done really fast. Like, they're, the procedures are startup-like. They're very loose, right? And, and so, you know, like, you clearly can't have, unless people, unless you have the most talented people executing in a loose framework like that, 
where their talent is really taken full advantage of by giving them sort of having that much kind of looseless looseness in the organization that they can exercise individual authority at a low level, which is not the same as being in charge of policy. And, um, you know, that is sort of part of it. I was, I mean, it was just a different time, but the thing is if you're creating a completely new administration, it has to have that spirit about it. It has to have this just like spirit of like sweeping away everything. And it has to have the spirit of being like so insanely superior. I mean, like imagine you're, you know, you and six guys, um, all of whom are as smart of you and, one of them, you know, got a silver medal in the IMO and one of them has a PhD in history. And you're just like, okay, what should U.S. foreign policy be? Let's start from nothing. Right. You know, and, and like the experience of that is just like completely exhilarating and unforgettable. And it's through experiences of that, you know, seriously, look up the history of something called the inquiry, which later became the Council on Foreign Relations. It's almost exactly like that. Right. And, um, and so that feeling of having just an amazing set of people who are just like absolutely convinced that they're there to found something completely new and completely different is just like that group will collectively feel that they have the right to rule. And no one else in our society, including the people who actually do rule, feels that they have that right. The people that actually like, if you go close, as you go closer and closer to like the center of what matters in DC, you will get the same common sentiment that holy shit, no one is in charge. Like I look up and I don't see anyone, but that must mean that I'm in charge. But I look down and I'm definitely not in charge. And, and that's sort of the feeling at the top level. They're just like, holy shit, there's no one in charge of this insane system. And the, um, that, in that can't help but be different in a new regime. Like one form of chaos can't take over from another form of chaos. And so you'll have this like tremendous esprit de corps and sense of purpose and action that will just completely destroy and flatten and render completely meaningless any of the like political prejudices and opinions you came in with. And this is why... Napoleon can be just like, I don't know what testing regime he did or whatever, but he's just like, if you pass the test and you're a good civil servant, it doesn't matter what your ideology is. And, you know, that when you get to that point and you've established an elite with that character, like no old elite can come to you and be like, wait, but you should recognize our, you know, uh, credentials, uh, you know, uh, our, all of our, you know, <laughs> like all of our, like, you know, cred- and I'm like, yeah, okay. You know what? The first thing we're going to do, we're going to take all of those credentials. We're going to log them. We're going to say, what credential did you achieve under the old regime? And we'll like standardize them. And so we'll say, you know, like going to an I like it won't say Brown or Harvard. It'll be like Ivy league, you know, that'll be measured according to your, that'll be like, um, um, merge with your GPA. And so it would be like, you know, okay, your performance in this technical field was a 3.7. We actually, it's politically incorrect, actually, in the new regime to even say the names of these old institutions. It's like using the N word. Hmm. You don't say Harvard, 
like you know you might yell it out of your car window if you were like mad at someone right you know and and the uh, <laughs> um but but yeah but don't you don't want anyone to hear you right you know and and so you know what you have from the old regime is like okay these are the credentials you got and by the way that number just like a one dimensional number will be adjusted based on whether you received um or you know positive or negative um as no gentle way to say it um race based um you know credential intervention and so right you know if you basically got into a school that we won't name because of your race and you got a 4.0, maybe that's treated as a 3.0. Maybe you got to pay the price on that end. Uh, you know, um, other than that, like the, um, you know, it's just like, okay, here is this old system whose um, technical judgment we trust in most respects, uh, whose judgment of the humanities we don't trust at all. Uh, as far as <laughs> math goes, it's pretty much perfect. But so was the Soviet Union. You know, as far as um, sociology goes, uh, we don't really need to keep any of this work. But look, if you got a sociology PhD, that shows that you, you know, worked hard and were able to keep your nose clean. You know, like you should get something from that credential. And it will be a credential that says you worked hard, understood the statistics, knew how to keep your nose clean. Uh, but if you have a math, you know, uh, math needs to be preserved. Like, there's no regime that has really been able to corrupt math. Um, I mean, Nazi math is fine, right? You know, and even Nazi physics is very questionable, but Nazi math is fine. <laughs> and um, yeah, I posted, I posted like a screenshot from Pascal Jordan's Wikipedia today. Uh, you know, like that. Head, there, there's a recent no. headline that was like, um, uh, <laughs> that was like, who decides we're in a recession? White people <laughs> or like white. <laughs> It's like you you, oh you can't make God. this shit up, right? It, it's like, it, and I posted I just like I just like co-tweeted this. I posted like um, Pascal Jordan's Wikipedia page. It's like he was relegated from the from the Nazi regime for believing in Einstein's physics. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, and 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 the the um um yeah, that's a that's an appropriate signal of dissent, right? You know, and the um, but math. Math, even if they're right, math is fine, right? You know, and it may not may have made the strides that it would have made if there was more Jews, right? That's true, but they're like proofs aren't wrong. And, um, and so, you know, every, when you're basically, nonetheless, you know, where the, one of the chief hotbeds of national socialism was in Germany in the 1930s. Uh, doctors. Right. Universities. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I believe never having been there, I believe we can say that the German university was successfully denazified. Um, <laughs> I don't see any remaining pockets of Nazism remaining, uh, you know, but maybe I just haven't looked closely enough. I don't know. We should look into it, but you know, the, um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really see it. And so, you know, whatever the ideology of the university is, it will match the sort of because a university is a group of young talented people it is a group of young ambitious people and it will not, it will you know the beliefs of those people will sort of match the opportunities that ambition offers and so if you know the people in Heidelberg in 1931, imagine themselves as the SS officers of a future Nazi 
regime, that's very exciting. I mean, think of the uniforms, right? And the, like, to be able to, ex- to sort of be excited by the, like, telos of victory, to see that telos directly, to see the new thing that you're going to be creating, that is very, very exciting. And so, you know, that sort of, like, any new regime has to capture and own that excitement probably before it exists, but certainly after it exists. It has to be, like, actually, like, okay, working at Google used to be exciting, but the new exciting is working for the president. Like, and the quality of people is such that, yeah, but you could never get that job. Right. And, and so, you know, that level, which is really, frankly, not entirely true the way that, never mind. Um, but, um, you know, so that sense of like scaling up a machine for ruling like that is like really, really possible. And then the question is sort of, can you maintain it? And that's just a matter of like keeping your like personnel processes sharp. Um, I'm not going to mm. use the word HR. I think after the change, if, you know, if you say HR, yeah, that, like, that'll be the, uh, that's like the N word. That's like <laughs> yeah. the N word. Like if you say, and you know, if like, if it was ironic, I'm like, okay, I get it. But like, you know, you should be careful with that. But if you meant it seriously, like you're gone, you're done. Like, you know, your name goes on a list somewhere and any, you know, I mean, it's, it's not good. Uh, so, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't have HR. We have to the personnel. gulags with you to the gulags with you. Wait, no, you're canceled, right? No, we don't have HR. We have personnel, right? And, you know, <laughs> um, um, personnel is mainly, um, you know, concerned with, um, finding and keeping the people who will be most effective in working for your organization. So super weird thought. I know that's a real reframing, but that's the goal of personnel, right? And so, you know, the personnel problem of I just got elected. I need to basically hit Washington with a bureaucratic paratroop invasion force in two and a half months. Can, mm. are there people that can do that shit? Fuck yeah. Am I one of them? Fuck no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> are there people that can like make an amazing shot at that? Fuck yeah. And, like, imagine if, like, in November, you know, 6, 2020, Trump is like, okay, first, selling the hotel. Secondly, building this machine, right? You know, I mean, and mm. instead, and and from, you know, the interesting question is sort of what interactions such a machine should have with people who actually know Washington as it is. Because you want them to be, come from a perspective which is outside of Washington and cannot be captured by it. But you don't want them to be completely ineffectual against this black box. And so there's sort of an interesting kind of leveling or sprinkling of like, you know, what you also need besides the YC, you know, founders or whatever is a sprinkling of people who worked inside the regime, who see it in a completely inside the administrative state, who see it in a completely unsympathetic, realistic and, um, and cynical way and are basically willing to share that reality, not because they'll be working for the next regime. That's absolutely forbidden, but they'll be like, um, you, you know, you don't want to, yeah, I mean, even in West Germany, the fact that they hired so many Nazis was a mistake. And, and West Germany is fine, but still, why? Right? You know, and, um, 
the um um and so like you're basically getting sort of a roadmap like FDR actually interestingly enough did something similar to this he created something called the bureau of the budget which is a bureaucratic ancestor of the modern OMB and it was not actually about budgeting at all the idea of the bureau of the budget was that it's important to be efficient with taxpayer dollars. And because of this, basically, the Bureau of the Budget can send an agent into anywhere in the government to report on whether money is being used efficiently. And, of course, that means to report on anything. So he basically creates this parallel civil service that can, like, parachute into the fucking State Department's Paris desk and under the pretext of being, like, are you wasting money, like, be, like, a commissar and be, like, okay this is what you're going to do now. And so like, it was things like that that gave FDR his just like utterly tremendous power. And then of course, you know, this is a, is at a time when the university world is expanding rapidly and he's a feeder. He's just feeding off of that supply of human quality. You know, the way I always express this, I don't think I've used this on your thing before is it's like, imagine, you're going to Harvard and you graduate with an economics degree, new field in 1934. And you know, someone who knows someone who knows Tommy Corcoran or Felix Frankfurter or one of those other uh, machers, as we say in Yiddish. And your friend is like, maybe I can get, you know, you get good grades and then you get a call and the call is like, Hey, you know, Billy, why don't you come to Washington? And you're like, Okay, but what will I be doing? And the guy on the other end of the phone is like, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out when you get here. <laughs> and, and you get here and they're like, all right, here's your desk. Uh, here's uh, $3 million. Go electrify Arkansas. Right. You know, and, and, and that's the, uh, that's basically my caricatured experience of the New Deal. It wasn't all like that epic, but like there was a lot of that. You know, same guy graduates from like, you know, Harvard with a degree in economics and like, you know, 2021 and it's like um when do he goes to the post office and like there's an envelope there and it's like um you've won the unpaid internship right and you go (laughs) right i mean it's just like it's It's just tragic it's tragic right and so the thing is that basically it's tragic and the result is that you know the washington machine is no longer getting the people best people at all because who wants to do this who wants to do this is basically tracy flick if you've seen you ever seen the movie election with reese witherspoon uh tracy flick is basically playing hillary clinton she's playing this like very ambitious good girl um and um the um um like the, yeah, I mean, that's the kind of people who want, I, I, the, that's the kind of people who wind up in DC now, right? And they're just like, they suck. And so, you know, one of the things, um, I should probably get off the line in a little bit, but, um, you know, let me close with this example. So one of the sort of great transitions like this is the transition from the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire. What really happened in this transition is that the Roman military is put in charge of the Roman state, which previously had been um, ruled by, like, letters between Roman aristocrats in a very corrupt and not very effective way. And 
that revolution, there's an example of that revolution of effectiveness of these two different systems of governance, which for which let me sort of put the last part first and think about the modern example of this. The modern example of this is Barack Obama's healthcare signup site, where basically they tried to build this bog standard website DC style and spent hundreds of millions of dollars and failed. And then some motherfuckers from Silicon Valley who all of who shared Barack Obama's politics, I'm sure came in and basically built a site for them in like three weeks using Python and an old 46 Linux box or something. Right. I mean, whatever, <laughs> there was just a huge disparity in the quality of these ways of doing things. You remember that, right? Brian. Oh yeah, totally. Uh, so the, um, but the parallel to that in the late Roman Republic and early Roman Empire, I think is super interesting. So what happens is that Rome in like uh, 75 BC, something like that, Rome has this huge problem with pirates. And, you know, a modern comparison might be like the drug cartels in Mexico. Like these pirates have like, they're like generations of pirates. They're like pirate kings. They're all like involved in politics in some ways. It's all like really corrupt and dirty. And it's becoming like this huge ass problem for Rome because Rome needs to feed itself with grain from North Africa. And the problem is between North Africa and Rome, there's like the ocean and that's where you get pirates. So like finally the Republic is desperate and they're like, you know what? Ordinarily we would have managed the campaign against pirates in the civilian way, but why don't we manage it in the military way? And the Roman military at the time is like the most, one of the most effective militaries in history. It's constantly tested by fighting against the Gauls. Caesar himself has performed this, like these like amazing feats of like massive Gaul aside. Like he kills like hundreds of thousands of Gauls, like you'd kill a freaking mosquito. Like, and you know, performs these like, I mean, his military, like he's still considered one of the greatest generals of all time. He's like the Elon Musk of like killing Gauls, right? You know, and so, um, but the guy actually that gets the nod here is what happens is the Senate is like, we're going to suppress the pirates. We actually care. And because we actually care, we're going to do it the military way. And we're just going to put one guy in charge of suppressing the pirates. And he's not Caesar. This is like a proto-Caesar. This is Pompey, Pompey, who was afterward called Pompey mm. the Great because of pulling off of this shit. And Pompey is like, and they're like, the Senate is like, okay, Pompey is like, has what the Romans called imperium, absolute command of the sea. If there's any activity in the whole Roman world that is plausibly related to the ocean, Pompey gets to do whatever the fuck he wants with it. And Pompey, a young guy, very much a thought up guy, given this power is like, okay. And without any computers, without any internet, without any phones, without any guns, without anything but like wood and bronze and donkeys, I guess he had steel. Um, Pompey manages in three months to clean the entire Mediterranean of pirates. 
And for this reason, he is known as Pompey the Great. And, and like the, he's just like, okay, we're going to build a fleet, blah, 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 you know, the fleet goes here, the, you know, right. And he just plays it like a video game and, and like just makes shit happen in a way that would impress any startup founder. And like shit happens and the pirates are and all of Rome is just like, holy shit, like the normal way of founding, solving things according to the Roman Republic has been practiced for 400 years, founded by Romulus who like, you know, sucked the dick of a dead wolf or something, right? You know, um, no, that wasn't, you know, but, um, the, the like, something like that, something like that, right? There's a wolf thing, definitely, you know, and, and it's, it's coarse, it's very coarse, you know, and, and the like, and, Instead, when we do things the way like Alexander the Great would have done them, we get the same results as Alexander the Great, which is they just suddenly get done, you know? And basically at that point, people can't really believe in the Republican system anymore because they basically know that basically putting Elon Musk in charge of suppressing the pirates is going to basically leave you with no pirates in three months. Whereas putting the State Department in charge of suppressing the pirates is basically means your wife will probably be raped by a pirate, right? You know, and, and so like at a certain point, you know, Napoleon, remember Napoleon's dictum that every, every government is safe if the most talented people are in charge. Like the way Washington worked in the 1930s attracted the most talented people. The way Washington works today does not. And so you have this natural, you know, to coin a phrase or not coin a phrase, excuse me, circulation of the elites that sort of is ready to happen. And the ability to kind of make that circulation happen with the energy from non-elite forces is sort of the interesting problem of how to kick this off. But once it gets started, it won't stop. Why would it stop? Right. You know, you're a esprit de corps of like being one of these like sharks ripping apart the carcass of this like ginormous dead whale of the 20th century regime. Like, you know, once it's, it's, I mean, that'll be an amazing job. And I, you know, I'd like to think it's going to happen, but there's no sort of gradual way to do it. You basically have to do the thing that I described. You have to basically come in on day one with an already prepared replacement government. And that, that replacement process just has to never pause or stop. And as soon as it's clear that that's happening, everyone will run because everyone knows that it's just over. Can you see yeah, it? Something, Can you imagine something it? Something that strikes me from there, yeah. Something that strikes me from there is that kind of power plus confidence creates the allure. Yeah. 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 And confidence can create so much of its own power. It's not even funny. And basically that sense of like, like this is exactly what Trump had. He had, you know, tremendous bluster. He was like a guy who's taken a bunch of PUA classes and like pretends to be like a football jock. He had a bunch of like bluster, but he never had that fundamental confidence. You know, I was reading a book by uh, someone who was not a fan of FDR and they had this paragraph long description of FDR. And I was like, holy shit, that's a description of Trump, except but for <laughs> one change. So basically FDR 
is incredibly vain. He's incredibly charismatic. He can fill a room. He's incredibly like funny and like dominating and cool. Uh, he has the attention span of a fruit fly. He's, he's very clever, but not very smart. Um, and there's just like only he has enormous common sense. And there's sort of only one difference between him and Trump, which is that FDR has enormous confidence and Trump is incredibly neurotic. And this is because mm. FDR is from the highest social class. He's from one of the great families of America. And Trump is this like nobody bourgeois arriviste, right? You know, Trump is like middle class. Trump is a peasant. And the that difference is sort of what sinks it in a way. That's quite interesting. I don't. I, I'm not sure if I I buy that. That's the only difference, though. I, I no, think the kind no. of administrative capability. Well, no, capability. Trump. Trump the, that's the thing. FDR didn't have any administrative capability, but the thing is, because of that confidence. He was able to delegate to people who did have that competence and he did not feel threatened by them. And so he delegated to a whole bunch of amazing managers, people like Harry Hopkins, um, who are even the Manhattan Project. Like FDR isn't going around like, you know, tinkering and how the, they're trying to build nuclear bombs. Like basically FDR's principle was like, I'm a very lazy person. I like to find someone very capable and put them in charge if I later hear evidence that they're fucking up, uh, I'm very lazy, so I will just shoot them and find someone else because that's easier too. And the uh, not shoot them, shoot them. You know what I mean. But um, yeah. the like the sense of like FDR's ability—it's that confidence which creates that ability to delegate. Whereas what Trump was always doing was that anytime someone. Anytime the press wanted to destroy someone in his administration, they would build that person up. That's what they did to Bannon until basically Trump mm. was like, oh, wow, this guy's a threat to me. Maybe this is really the Bannon administration as approved by Trump. And I'll show I'll see what proves that that isn't the case. And then he shoots Bannon, you know, and so like that's just yeah, that's just his, you know, it would be wonderful. I believe that all human beings can change. I could imagine a Trump administration in which Trump delegated his power to someone, all of his power to like one chief of staff and said, you run the government. I'll go on TV and play golf. Um, but I just don't know that he has the stones for that. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I'm still not convinced because like who, who's like one person in the Trump administration who like, y like you talked about Bannon. Like I, I don't really see Bannon as a kind of like, Amazing, no, um, no. Operator either, right? Bannon, like, Bannon, who yeah. from the Trump administration is like that kind of operator. There, there was like no, no, one, right? no, you have no. To find no. Those well, you place. know, there was one. I'll give you one exception. So, so the exception um, is uh, people like Bill Barr or John Bolton. So, if John you look Bolton, at really, if you look at people like Barr and Bolton, um, you know, there's basically. The normal personnel choice when staffing these agencies, which I don't think Trump should have ever even started with. He should have just discarded them and built new ones. But the problem in trying to staff these agencies, which is an essentially impossible problem to do right, is that you have you can choose between three groups of people. Um, you can choose um, hacks who just want to occupy the job and do what they're told to do and have it on their resume so that they can later consult and really just care about having a nice car and a good family. 
Um, you can appoint true believers, uh, which is something only a democratic administration will do for obvious reasons. Um, and then the true believers are full of piss and vinegar and try to actually get things done. Wait, sorry, what's the obvious reason? Um, because, because, because a Republican president is always opposed to the bureaucracy. And, and so (laughs) if you appoint true believers at the Department of Energy, they're climate change fanatics. Trump doesn't want to do that, right? Regardless of the truth of whatever, right? And so the true believers is another set. Um, you have the, um, and then finally you have the set of people like Barr and Bolton. And what these people are, they're basically Nixonites. They have the same view of government that Nixon did. Nixon basically is like this very smart, probably the highest IQ president of the 20th century. And maybe Wilson, maybe Nixon, you know, and Nixon looks at the government and is being like, this is a clown show. And the reason it's a clown show is it's being run by these like clown hippie or proto hippie para communist ideologies. And here's how we are going to demonstrate that we are the natural ruling party of America. We are going to take this clown show and you're going to run it properly like grownups. So, you know, Bill Barr does not want to destroy the Justice Department. He wants to basically create a Justice Department, which is essentially under adult supervision. He doesn't approve of sort of all of this like Russiagate stuff. He knows what a scam that is, but he also doesn't want to use it to destroy the department. He just wants to like make it not happen. And he wants to like return the professionalism and the original purpose to these existing regimes. Same with Bolton. He's like, the mission of national security is to like secure the U.S. Like, come on, Israel's not a threat to our national security. Iran is. Let's bomb Iran, right? You know, and like that or not, um, you know, there's a sort of at least a logical consistency to it, but it's a completely different thing from having people that are just completely, that find this organization completely alien, roughly as alien as like a Jewish kid from Brooklyn finds, you know, the like SS headquarters when he's asked to de- help demobilize the SS. Like there's just like no possibility that this thing should continue existing. Whereas the Bolton Bar Review, even though these are guys that, you know, you know, as my, in my father, my father is a State Department veteran. He's like, what Trump really needs is guys that know where the bodies are buried. And Bolton and Barr know where the bodies are buried, but they're not interested in digging up the bodies. At least they're interested in, you know, planting like a nice crop of corn and forgetting that there are any bodies buried anywhere. And, but like, there should be no more killing, no more bodies, definitely. But like, you know, let's like harvest the corn, you know, and, and, that, and let's not dig up the northwest corner of the cornfield and, and have a, you know, there's all these trucks coming through, like, you know, news trucks, police tape, you know, what's that going to do to your corn harvest? Right. You know, <laughs> and, and that's basically the attitude of the Nixonians that they're basically going to run the government like grownups and the public who are consists of grownups are going to look at this and be like, Oh yeah, we said we wanted a grown-up government. Thank God we finally got one. Unfortunately, that like, definitely happened. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right? You know, and and so, um, yeah, like you don't want to, like, you definitely don't want to repeat that mistake. Um, and and, but yeah, it's just like it's like the more concrete you make it, the more easily you can see it happening, and it's not like a violent. 
or dystopian or bloody or anything process. It's actually just like very, very joyous to see these old things just fall into dust. And the minute they fall into dust, it's obvious that they always should have been dust. Right. If you work at the State Department, whether you're in an embassy overseas, if you're in an embassy overseas, if the inauguration is on Tuesday, you are getting your tickets home no later than Thursday. And the building will be on the real estate market in that country um, by at least next month. Don't think that you're coming home to work in the Truman Building. The Truman Building is closed and also has been demolished with the flags of many nations intact inside it. I don't know if you've ever been in the State Department headquarters, obviously. And so what is left of the State Department, what is left is the personnel records, which indicate what rank you achieved. We can't take this achievement away from you. You worked hard for that. Future employers will get to know that. Um, and it records your salary and thus paying for your pension plan. Uh, you're done. Um, you're not going to starve. You're going to get checks every month. These checks will come to you directly from the Fed, um, which can print money. So it will print money and give it to you. Fine. Uh, you know, and, um, and you can write your novel. And like, you know, when you're basically doing that to, when you leave it, when you're so confident in what you're doing that you leave this organization completely in dust and the dust realizes instantly that it has no desire to get back together and reform the organization. Like none, like nobody's like who used to be a Stasi officer on Tuesday and got fired on Wednesday is like on Thursday, like we must restart the revolutionary movement. No, that's not how it works, you know? And, and so like once that, is clear like when the faster you move the more quickly the old regime will become dead and the debtor it will become and the debtor it gets the harder and harder it seems to reverse the change and that's basically the feeling of like regime changes you just set that process on fire and you go through it rapidly until your enemies can no longer execute because they simply do not recognize the world they would have to execute in. Mm, this kind of disorientation is. Very yeah, exactly. Like this. you need to yeah. basically smash them into a position where they could theoretically, if they had some organizing principle resist in practice, there's no organizing principle and they have no idea what they would do to resist. It certainly doesn't involve violence. I mean, you fire all the State Department, what is that, 40,000 people? Is that really going to create a, a mob of 40,000 armed paramilitaries on the Capitol Mall resisting? No, like none of these people has ever been in a fist fight, you know? Um, and, and so, you know, I don't know. Painting it as an insurrection would be pretty, pretty useful. <laughs> yeah, right. But they wouldn't even do that, right? You know, yeah. like, like crowd control on these fuckers is trivial. And, um, you don't even need water cannons. You need like super soakers, you know, and you need like a loud bullhorn, you know, like, um, you need to offer them ice cream bars, right? You know, like these are not powerful, strong, dangerous people. They're just not. And, so it actually, when you just look at this principle, it's so much easier to kind of tip the system over than you think. And the like level between you tip it over completely and you don't tip it all over at all is just a total no man's land. Either you're doing nothing or you're doing everything. 
And yeah, because it's like a cascade, right? It's yeah. like a you know, like there's like preference cascades. This is like a power yeah. cascade. It's a power like cascade. cascade. It's a it's a power cascade. Yeah. And basically after that power cascade, everyone takes all of the little doubts that they had in their mind that they carefully snuffed out every time they thought these thoughts, and all these thoughts come rushing back and unify themselves into a new thought. And the new thought is, I was a dissident too. I always hated all of this. <laughs> yes. Right? And, and, and like, that is their truth. And you have to respect that truth. At the same time, you know, I mean, if you have evidence that you were dissonant, you know, uh, you know, the, like, uh, you know, the, uh, the court will treat you in a different category. But, you know, but, you know, let's assume that there was no evidence and you were in a, a dissident in your heart. And let's go along with believing that everyone was a dissident in their hearts, which, Perhaps in a certain way they were, but not in any obvious or useful way. <laughs> and, and, and like, and that's the feeling of a real regime change and everyone's life changes. Like if you're doing the same job and in the same career before and after the regime change, that's really unusual as a mathematician. Yeah. Really? Maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Think about, think about what jobs you would be doing in East Germany, like before or after what they call die Wende, the turn. Like, you know, who is suitable for like a job as a school teacher in the old regime and in the new regime, right? You know, you can sort of go down the like, you know, basically, even if you can just sort of rotate people in careers. So you might say, okay, let's take San Francisco, but in the new San Francisco, we're going to kind of rotate down the hierarchy of force. So the uh, new judges will be staffed from the old police force. And the new police force will be staffed from the old special forces. And so you basically have the Navy SEALs arresting people and then, you know, asking people who used to be San Francisco cops, what should be done with a scumbag? And, and the, uh, you know, um, um, and so there, there are ways in which you can completely reset the government without using people who worked outside the government just by sort of creative reuse of skill sets outside existing organizational capacities, like basically saying, okay, the judges of the new world will be the cops of the old world, right? And um, I don't think there would be much crime under this regime. I mean, there might be some initially, but I don't think it would really um, work out, you know? Um, and so there's actually, you know, there's things like that that you can do in sort of staffing up the new organization. But, you know, the speed that this happens with has to take everyone's breath away. Speed is just so important. I, I think, like... The thing is that to to me the speed part comes seems like you said right it seems kind of inevitable if you have the kind of first two aspects right if you yeah, have the yeah. confidence in the power if yeah, you have but the speed yeah. the speed is like there's you know that could be slowed down and it shouldn't be slowed down it should just execute at a rate that totally baffles its enemies and the um you know because as long as they can't sort of sit still and think about, you know, they start to think about how to respond to a current situation and then the situation changes and they never even got started thinking. That's how it should feel. And, mm, yeah, and that's like the, how you the, the, feel. That's, that's how you make the enemy feel when you're winning a war. 
Yeah, I think that kind of disorientation is actually a kind of very, very natural effect in in a lot of cases, right? People yeah. who are just like naturally not operating at the same level, the kind of disorientation is nearly constant. Yeah, right. So, yeah. Right. You just want, you I want the think, whole thing to be like yeah. completely beyond them and above them. And like, just, it just needs to work so well and so fast. And in order to do that, it just needs such absolute confidence in its authority. And like that confidence will just like get the response that it needs. I'm convinced of that. And mm, so, um, yeah. So how do we, this is kind of like the, the, um, post power or near and post power uh situation right um a kind of parallel question to that mm-hmm. is getting the staff for um taking power right which is yeah. basically like campaign staff or like yeah campaign, and that's a that's a media. that's a slightly earlier and slightly slower process you actually want that group to be separate from the people that actually take power for the specific reason that you want to take, don't want to take your eye off the ball. You don't want them to be mm-hmm. like basically thinking about what they do once they win. Once they win, their job is actually done. Their job is just to win. So there are lots of shops that are like, you know, that's a sort of longer, slower hiring process. And you definitely want people with intersections with real, real reality and even with like political reality. Like, you know, for example, like, you know, the set of people of like young whippersnappers that made like Brexit happen is like a thing. You'll find these little pools of existing talent in various places, supplementing them heavily with like selection by IQ test. Um, and similar things, you have a little more time to sort of create that elite because, of course, it takes some time for the whole thing to get to culmination. It's not like your two and a half month, like zero to inauguration project. And, um, so yeah, it's like, you know, but yeah, you're looking for like sort of misfits with a clue who nonetheless know how to get things done. It's almost more like, the job of winning office is fundamentally an advertising problem. It's fundamentally a public communication problem. It's fundamentally a narrative problem. It calls for artists, not social scientists, not like, you know, not even people who know how to govern. It causes for people, you know, it calls for people who know how to create a look and a feeling. A movie director would do, you know, a fine job. So we don't have to have kind of, execution competence until uh, until there is actually yeah not in not in the sense mm-hmm. of i mean you have to execute a campaign effectively but it's a very different kind of governance yeah that, that strikes me as i don't know that doesn't maybe i'm a bit kind of like maybe i'm kind of a bit um over overthinking these these elections but having that kind of staff and having that kind of understanding or operational ability uh in, in terms of dealing with kind of the the play-by-play of all of these um all of these kind of events that might happen while you're on the campaign trail sure. that that to me seems very important it is and, very and important that to me, like it selecting is... like those people seems yeah. like, like oh, quite a difficult don't get me wrong. It's a very, it's a very hard problem. I just want to sort of conceive it as separate from the problem of actually creating the new regime. Cause those people should be focused entirely on their job of winning. 
Yeah, like I, I don't like, like. Let's say I had a I had a billion dollars and I and I was going to do this today. I I actually think it's like very non trivial of like where I would go about oh, yeah. like oh, yeah. these people. Right? Oh yeah, very yeah. very 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 you know the very non trivial. All right, um, I should go. Uh, this was fun. Um, and um, I think I've uh, basically um sort of laid out most of what I know and can say uh, publicly about this process. And, uh, you know, hopefully you'll agree that it's actually a fairly reasonable process. Yeah, so, I just want, or do you, do you want to answer like the last question of the show? All right, let me answer the last question of the show. Yeah. And I mean, this is very close to what we've been talking about already, but uh, what is something that has too much order and needs more chaos or something that is too much chaos and needs more order? Well, there's lots of things that have too much chaos and need more order. Um, the New York City subways <laughs> have too much chaos and need more order. Um, things that have too much order and need more chaos tend to be things that are sort of too highly, tightly held within a monopolistic context. So perhaps an example would be like the Apple App Store, which I think should be not one store, but like a mall of stores. And, um, sort of each mall, each store within the mall should actually be like curated. But instead you have this like monster of things that are like ranked by horrible gameable metrics and, um, then gated by this like ridiculous app censorship process, which is frankly incredible. And, um, so yeah, that's basically like, too much order in a way too much like it's not even order it's a kind of like but you could call it too much order it's it's sort of too much stasis too much like too much order imagine like building a house in san francisco that's also like too much order in a sense it's too much it's sort of this x this overproduction of procedure i don't know that i'd call it order in like the highest spiritual sense but it is definitely something like having too much order does that make sense yeah, I totally agree with uh, the App Store point. This that's actually like a very that's underrated uh, inefficiency, especially yeah. in the tech world. It is. It is. All right, all right, Brian. Um, yeah. This was a huge pleasure, and um, let me know when it's up. And um, your readers can find me at graymirror.substack.com. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for coming on.